The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network, GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Before we get started with our guest Alexander Petikoff and cryptids and Bigfoot and all that other good stuff, I wanted to talk with Tim Swartz about one or two things. As you remember, because you forwarded it to me, there was this list that was provided by Mindy Toddfest, our guest last week showing some of the people who represented Hayden Hughes' UFO group in the mid-1960s. You recall that one? Oh, yes. And one of them was a guy named Steinberg. And I'll give you the address because I don't even think the post office is there anymore. Box 87, Rugby Station, Brooklyn, New York, 11212. Hmm. And I looked at that and it reminded me of something. So let's go back to 1963. You'll know what I'm talking about. I had the box there because I had a small UFO club. And this way I could get mail and my parents wouldn't be bothered with it. Simple as that. So I kept the box. Also, it looks fancier than a home address to have the box address. Now, it doesn't matter. So I took my bicycle and drove to the post office. This is late afternoon. And everybody was very quiet. Normally, they say hello to me. So I got my stuff, went back to the house, went back to actually working out with weights for a while. My dad comes home from work, and he says, did you hear that the president has been shot? Mm. November 22nd, 1963. That's when I learned of it. That explained the attitude of the people in the post office. They were so quiet. Normally, it's kind of a bustling place. That's the memory it brought back. Isn't that peculiar? <laughs> I was just a wee lad then. I have absolutely no memory except that there was the old lady who lived next door was babysitting us. And she was watching it on the television. And I remember her just saying over and over again that it's so awful. It's just so, so awful. But. I was too young to understand what was going on. But I do remember that. And this is way before Alexander's birth time, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, actually, you're fortunate because you'll be around longer than I will. I am as old as the hills. Uh, well, I guess I'll have to see the way the world is going. I don't know <laughs> necessarily if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. We wonder if the world will still be here. Very pertinent question, I think, nowadays. Okay, you are the opposite of me. You're an adventurer. You're an outdoorsman. I stay inside. 
And my adventures are mostly verbal, mostly just watching. I mean, I've been out to different places. Where have you traveled and why did you even get interested in cryptozoology? I think the question is probably where have I not been to? I've been quite lucky to, to visit a lot of locations around not only North America, but other parts of the world. You know, when I talk to people in this subject, oftentimes they get into it because they've had a personal encounter with maybe some mysterious creature or UFO sighting or some sort of occurrence that got them interested in not only cryptozoology, but maybe the paranormal. Whereas that's one camp prominently, and the other camp seems to be people that just have an interest maybe due to media or just reading about these kinds of materials, and I fall into that second camp. I was a child of the 1990s, so I grew up during kind of the heyday of the X-Files. Obviously, one of the favorite shows, I think, of a lot of people involved in these types of topics, uh, for good reason. I also grew up on some of those documentaries like In Search Of, later on Monster Quest, Animal X. I was very interested in those topics. I began reading on it. Before social media, you know, we still actually read books then. And then when the internet came around, blogs were a really big thing. So I was heavily influenced by the works of people like Lauren Coleman and others who wrote on blogs such as Cryptomundo. You know, you wouldn't go onto Facebook then to check out what your favorite researcher was doing. You would see if every week, hey, did they post a new blog article this week? You know, what's the latest update on this Bigfoot expedition or what's the latest Nessie news? That was kind of how we got some of that information. So, uh, yeah, again, I, I've always been interested in that sort of stuff. And since a young age, just a, the idea, I think, stems from perhaps the, the need for adventure and kind of this romantic notion that the world is still a mysterious place, despite how tame it seems. And we as humans have kind of made this world, we're the masters of this domain, so to speak, at least we think so, until you go into the Alaskan wilderness and mm. get thrashed around by rain for 10 days. And you quickly realize that, no, we do not control the world entirely. There is still pockets that will absolutely embarrass us as humans, and doesn't matter how good your technology is, Mother Nature will ultimately win. And I think that's always been something present and something I've been able to experience and just kind of the way I look at this topic. And yeah, so I think it's, it, again, stemmed from a curiosity of the world and the mysteries that are still out there is really what got me interested in these topics. Do you chase after UFOs or is it strictly cryptids? Oh, so um, it's kind of a funny story. I, I, I'm not really into the UFO topic, but I sort of am, if that makes sense. So uh, through some of my explorations and some places I've been uh, in different parts of the country, I've actually had a couple of UFO kind of sightings. And I can only really truly call them UFOs by the definition, unidentified flying object or UAPs, whatever we're calling them now, uh, current day and age. So I've had a sighting in Northern California of this kind of strange thing in the sky zipping around that didn't seem to be normal aircraft pattern, but it was very high up. Um, and probably the, mo the most interesting encounter I had, and probably the most interesting thing I've ever personally seen in my life, uh, to be honest, would have been a UFO sighting in Pennsylvania with a number of colleagues, some of whom you may know, Paul Eno from Behind the Paranormal, um, and a few others who were more involved into the UFO topics. We had had a kind of strange sighting out there in, an, in a property we were investigating, which had a history of anomalous activity, shadow people, 
kind of a triangle window area. Some folks like to call it high strangeness, I suppose would be a better term. There was also some some Bigfoot activity. Pennsylvania is fairly known for uh, being one of the top 10 states for Sasquatch sightings. I mean, there's just a lot of rural nothing between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So there's a lot of hunters in the woods. Pennsylvania has the most hunters in the U.S. So a lot of people in the woods to see strange things. Um, and we're investigating this property. And this was in uh, June of 2019. I have a full write-up of the incident as well as the footage on my website, pedikovmedia.com. But uh, we we watched this object for about five, ten minutes, just meandering through the sky, almost like a leaf floating in slow motion. And how I would describe it as was a illuminated cloud. So the, there was no clouds at all in the sky. There was a little bit of star cover. We were up on a hill, rural Pennsylvania, um, so you had pretty good visibility. Nothing obstructing our view, uh, and we begin to see what looks like a cloud with a light inside of it. And I initially thought it was sort of a uh, maybe the cloud in front of the moon, but I, I didn't make any sense for the moon to be that low, and it was moving, and it just sort of drifted along. And then we watched smaller, more defined, brighter lights fly out of this object, around it, and back into it. Um, and we watched this for a little while, and some of the guys I was with, again, people like Paulino and some of the others have been more interested in the UFO topic than myself and said it was one of the most interesting ones they've ever seen. Luckily, Paul managed to film the footage, and we have it on a night vision camera. And in the footage, you can see two objects flying parallel, one much smaller, the other one larger, in a sort of weird slow motion pattern, and they kind of become one. It's, again, on my website. Uh, very strange kind of incident. So, yes, I, I, I wouldn't say I actively investigate the UFO topic, but I, I suppose I am aware of it just because of what I experienced. It sort of opened my eyes a little bit to that, which is sort of ironic because I grew up and live in the state of New Hampshire, which is uh, very well known for, of course, the Betty and Barney Hill incident, as well as the Exeter UFO incident. So uh, there's a little bit of that history here, but I never really paid attention to it. I was always more interested in Bigfoot and the mystery creatures. But um, now, you know, when I hear an interesting UFO story, it definitely piques my interest. Of course, that topic is quite well known nowadays. So it's- <laughs> We've got Alexander, Gene, and Tim. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience, so I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. It's obvious we're being let down by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media are distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the real concerns of American families. Countries we're at odds with are hoarding food, financial systems are strained, and supply chains remain too fragile. We can tell something is coming. 
So we're preparing. Folks are getting into self-reliance and investing in emergency food storage. And My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, makes it easy for you to have peace of mind knowing you're prepared. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure some emergency food kits. There's a dozen to choose from that contain tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one food kit for each family member. And while you're there, stock up on water filtration, heirloom seeds, and emergency gear, too, at MyPatriotSupply.com. It's time to prepare today. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com. G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at TeamG'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at teamgaday.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your longevity business. Teamgaday.com. Teamgaday.com. I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call. I was volunteering on a project to get locally grown food into a school. That project was a complete failure, and I discovered that there were few local farmers. There's only four days' worth of food in the grocery stores, and everything comes 1,500 miles via a just-in-time trucking system. I lost friends and family who told me I was crazy to worry about that, but I kept at it. I'm Marjorie Wildcraft. Those of us who know what's going on in the world know you need to become self-reliant before the dollar collapses. I've created a free webinar at GCNfood.com. I can show you, like I've shown hundreds of thousands of people, how to grow lots of food, even if you have no experience, you're older, or you're out of shape. Do it now before the stores are boarded up and food is not available at any price. Go to GCNfood.com gcnfood.com No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. So before you do this or this, Make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Alexander Petikoff is an adventurer, a man about town who learned in the Orient that he seek. No, that's a different story. <laughs> He's too young to know what that is. So I won't upset him with all that. An avid outdoorsman, you hunt too or what? Uh, so, no, I'm not a hunter, per se, of animals in the uh, sense of killing them. Um, I do track animals and I'm very interested in finding out what certain animals do i mean even here at my home in new hampshire we have moose and black bear and all the sort of northeast woodland critters i haven't quite gotten into hunting yet but uh yeah i would say hunting in the sense instead of a gun i have a camera that's usually and that's kind of my approach with a topic like sasquatch as well have you photographed sasquatch 
Not personally, no. Um, well, I did get some thermal footage in Kentucky, actually, uh, which I, it's a stretch to say it would be a Sasquatch. It was just a very large, mysterious object over a thousand feet away from me on a hillside in rural Kentucky in an area with known Sasquatch activity. I just heard kind of a strange sound, a supposed wood knock, which some people believe are a communication method that Sasquatches might use. There's actually research that shows that chimpanzees use sticks and rocks and throw them at trees and smack them against trees to communicate with one another, which is interesting because in the Sasquatch topic, you have a lot of these strange parallels between reported behavior that people in North America talk about and things being discovered in great apes that previously were not known or behaviors. But anyway, back to Kentucky. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm filming on this hillside and I was alone at night in this location. It was late November before Thanksgiving. And I was in an area with uh, quite a history of activity. The show Monster Quest had had a bioacoustics professor in the same location. A number of years ago, they had rocks thrown at them, some of the typical sort of stuff. But I was out alone and I happened to be scanning on this hill just with a, a small thermal unit I had, a thermal camera, which shows you the heat signatures of pretty much anything in the area, including rodents. I mean, you can really see a lot of detail with some of these advanced thermal units. And I'm walking back to my car to warm up a little bit. It was about 22 degrees that night. Very brutal cold, not what you expect in Kentucky, uh, me being from the Northeast. But I happened to scan up on this hill, and I noticed this very large heat signature. I actually didn't believe it was anything alive at the time because of its size and shape and how distant it was from me. I thought, oh, it must just be, as I point the thermal up towards the top of the tree line, sometimes some of the trees and the rocks that are heating up during the day will actually give you a heat signature. So that's fully what I thought it might have been. I go back into my car for a little bit just to warm up, and I come back outside and film that same area, and that object is completely gone. Uh, and then, of course, being able to review it afterwards, uh, you know, in the field, you're staring into a, a small screen is how you're looking at it. So it's not exactly a great way to see something. When you put it on a screen, a larger screen like a laptop or a desktop computer, you, you finally get to see it in more detail. The object did seem to be animate, and it was just sort of sitting there. I don't know. I mean... Uh, I filmed a deer the previous night in that same location much closer to me, and it was far smaller than this object, which was almost twice as far as that deer was. Uh, and there's no known bears in that area, at least black bears. And even if there were a black bear, uh, it was late November, extremely cold. They would have been probably hibernating by that time point. So I can't say what it was. It was just very unusual. It was just kind of a blob-like shape. We, we jokingly call those blob squatches. So um, I don't know what it was. Uh, it was just unusual. I, I do hope to return to that location and try some experimenting in terms of being able to have somebody up in that location and do a size comparison and see does it match or is it something more mundane. But that's that's probably the closest I've gotten to some sort of footage of something. Other than that, we've had other strange encounters, the typical sort of ported behavior that fits what is described with Sasquatch, including vocalizations, rocks thrown in your direction, uh, wood knocks, so-called whoops. Again, a lot of these behaviors that actually are parallel in other apes and other primates that we know of, which is very fascinating. Did you receive special training in learning how to do this or what? No, there's not really any formal authority in terms of 
cryptozoology or sasquatchology whatever you want to call it there's, there's no formal training it's just sort of uh whatever experience you bring with you in my case I'm, I'm a filmmaker but i also did do some some wilderness survival training back in the day and i've done some extensive backpacking throughout parts of the northeast and uh, out west in the, the rocky mountains in alaska parts of canada elsewhere so i uh, just try to be as objective as possible. I think Occam's razor is a great way to look at this. You know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, I think Sasquatch, when it comes to Sasquatch, the evidence is far and few between. Skepticism is is very warranted. So, yeah, there's no formal training. It's just sort of, you, you, you learn as you go along. And what better way to learn than to start interviewing eyewitnesses, start going out in the field and challenging yourself, going at times where you think the chances of having some sort of interaction might be highest. Uh, don't believe every sound you hear in the woods is a Sasquatch. It's probably not and most likely not. And importantly, you know, stick to the facts. Don't deviate from the facts, as uh, famed Sasquatch researcher Thomas Steenberg would say, who's, uh, I think, a very good rational thinker in this field but uh being able to debunk your own evidence as well if you have something you think is sasquatch or or you're having some kind of encounter the last thing you should assume that it is is sasquatch unless you're physically seeing one in front of you uh, even then you know i'd be skeptical and i'd want to have somebody almost interrogate me just to see if that's truly what i saw or it's not me wishful thinking projecting some kind of image uh, because those sorts of things uh, might be able to happen you know you look for something so long and you get so frustrated and Maybe you conjure it up in your mind. I don't know. Uh, but I think just being as, as rational and skeptical as possible while also not being completely closed off to the possibilities is uh, very important. So, yeah, it's it's just kind of you learn as you go along. Um, and, again, I just used some of my previous skills and backgrounds in terms of video and working with cameras and different camera systems as well as some wilderness experience to kind of fill in the gap and uh, it helps you because nowadays I think most people uh, are not versed for being out in the woods or being out in the wilderness at all. Um, most people live in urban or suburban areas. Uh, we're moving away from cities. Even 100, 150 years ago, all of our ancestors were far more adapted to living closer to the land than we currently are, given our technology and all that that kind of comes along with that. So we've lost a lot of those instincts. I think trying to cultivate those is very important for people. I think it should be something that more people do. Well, certainly if you want to start on something, it's certainly an interesting way to get something going, especially if you have some career aspirations that might include exploration. What part of New Hampshire are you in, by the way? So I'm in southern New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not a very small, it's not a very large state, I should say, for folks who aren't familiar. It's up in the northeastern part of the U.S. Most of the time when I travel places, people have no idea where it is. They think everything up here is just Boston. Uh, but New Hampshire is actually the second most forested state by the amount of forest percentage-wise uh, after neighboring Maine, which is number one, uh, which connects to, uh, New Hampshire connects to to Vermont. We also uh, share a border with Canada, the province of Quebec, millions of acres of woods between all those territories. Uh, Maine and New Hampshire have some of the highest moose populations in the U.S. outside of Alaska. So they support huge 1,200-pound animals. Sasquatch, I don't think, is a stretch in that uh, case. But uh, that's where I'm at in New Hampshire, southern New Hampshire, beautiful area. Alexander, Gene, Tim, Got more to talk about strange creatures. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. 
Visit GCNlive.com today. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. USA News Update. Former President Trump has a 46-point lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in a new Wall Street Journal poll. The survey also has President Biden and Trump deadlocked in a theoretical general election matchup. Biden visited the worst-hit areas of Florida Saturday from last week's Hurricane Idalia. He vowed to provide federal support to those in need. A Florida judge on Saturday struck down congressional district lines for northern Florida advocated by DeSantis, ruling that the governor's map had improperly diluted black voting power, CNN reported. Jimmy Buffett died. The legendary singer was 76. He's famous for Margaritaville, Cheeseburger in Paradise, and other sing-along favorites. The Equalizer 3 is on pace to become the second-best Labor Day weekend debut. Jerry Barmash, USA News. Wellness and self-care doesn't have to be complicated. So keep it simple and take good care of yourself with Sunny Bay Heating Pads. Our heating pads soothe pains in the neck, back, and shoulders while relaxing muscles and increasing blood circulation. Sunny Bay Heating Pads have always been made in the USA and hand-filled to perfection with the highest quality materials. Sunny Bay Heating Pads are the perfect wellness gift for loved ones or yourself. See all of our high-quality products at sunny-bay.com, including heated body pads, neck pillows, heated neck and body wraps, and our stress-reducing lavender line. They're all affordable, durable, and in stock now and ready for immediate shipping direct from sunny-bay.com. Read our trusted, authentic, and real reviews at sunny-bay.com or just search for Sunny Bay Heating Pad. To your good health and wellness from Sunny Bay. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. And I'm going to give you a free copy of my lecture that tells you exactly how to do it. In fact, after you've lived a long and healthy life, there should be only two documents in your medical chart, a birth certificate and a death certificate. I'm Dr. Wallach with a warning. If you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, and other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. My free lecture is going to reveal what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. It's all in my free lecture called Deadly Recipe. So call toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. Again, that's toll-free 
1-855-79-YOUNG. 1-855-79-YOUNG. Hi, it's Grant Cameron from PresidentialUFO.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Speaking of strange creatures, Tim Swartz is our co-host. Alexander Petikoff is a filmmaker and explorer of the strange and the unknown. Now, speaking of New Hampshire, I lived in Claremont, New Hampshire, for a year or two, way back before you were born. Yeah, beautiful area. I know that's over by the uh, Vermont border there, not far from the Connecticut River. Exactly. Beautiful area. Mount Escutney, uh, you might be familiar with. Not that far from Claremont. You probably would have had a view uh, from town. There's been some reports, a couple of Bigfoot Field Researcher Organization reports in that area around Mount Escutney. I've heard rumors, stories of Sasquatches in the area. I have yet to venture over there to investigate, but definitely an interesting area. Looking at all the places you visited, what was the first one? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, One of the first kind of endeavors I did in terms of uh, cryptozoology film was actually Loch Ness. Uh, It was after I got out of school back in 2015. I took a trip, uh, my family being originally from the Balkans, Serbia and that area, Southeast Europe. I had spent some time over there with family and I decided to take a trip to Scotland to visit, of course, the famous Loch Ness. And I was poking around Loch Ness for a few days, interviewed some folks, uh, kind of got a feel for the area and then put a short documentary together about that. So that was one of the first places. I, I wouldn't really call it an investigation. It was more of a tourist trip that I turned into a little video. But it was really interesting going to a place that you've heard talked about for so long. Ever since I was a kid, I'd heard about Loch Ness, seen it in many documentaries, so many books, magazines, you name it. And to actually go there and uh, be able to experience it, it's one of those kind of bucket list locations. And uh, now looking on, I'm actually more skeptical about the story of Loch Ness than perhaps other lake monster stories around the world, such as Lake Champlain just here in my backyard in New England, in Vermont. Yeah, that would have been one of the first kind of cryptozoological endeavors that I sort of formally did before. You know, there were things that I was just enthusiastic about, but uh, Loch Ness was a lifelong kind of dream to investigate. So what is your conclusion about Loch Ness then? Well, see, I don't know if I have a certain set conclusion, but I do kind of lean towards the possibility that there, whatever was in the lake or may have been might be extinct. We've had a drop-off in sightings in the last few years. Uh, just a few days ago, actually, there was the largest Nessie hunt search, if you want to call it. In the last 50 or so years, since the 1970s, there was a big effort, a lot of TV crews out there, people with thermal drones, that sort of thing. I actually knew a few of the investigators involved. Uh, They didn't really turn up any interesting evidence, but it seems like there's been a lot of uh, stories over the years that might be able to be attributed to other known creatures or sea life, such as seals maybe getting into the lock or other animals. I mean, some of the original sightings that you look at actually from the 1930s at Loch Ness seem to be heavily influenced by the film King Kong. Uh, one of the first, some of the first sightings described that plesiosaur-like creature, and that was 1933, same year, I believe, when King Kong came out. And they have that famous sequence of some of the 
crew there getting away from a swimming dinosaur, which was this plesiosaur-like creature. And that's actually directly referenced, I believe, by some of the early Loch Ness witnesses in terms of that story. So I, I think there's a lot with Loch Ness. It's it's sort of this popular culture myth sort of area. And I think there's no coincidence that it is one of the most tourist-heavy areas of Scotland. I mean, it's one of the number one tourist attractions consistently in Scotland. So I imagine some of the people in that area probably have a little bit of an incentive to keep a little bit of that mystery and that story kind of going, uh, directly opposing something like uh, the Lake Champlain monster, which uh, happens to kind of occur in the Lake Champlain area in Vermont and upstate New York, bordering Canada. That, I think, has a lot more interesting details into it uh, as, as a lake monster story. And there's actually, you know, there's not really a huge tourist incentive for Champ or Champy, as the monster is called. That's not why people visit Lake Champlain. They go to Burlington. They go to upstate New York. They go boating and fishing. It's a very different situation than Loch Ness, which is almost dependent on the mystery of the monster to kind of keep it afloat, so to speak. There's a lot of similarities between Lake Champlain and Loch Ness. I mean, they're both uh, deep freshwater lakes, though I don't know if Lake Champlain, unlike Loch Ness, doesn't connect anywhere with, with the ocean like Loch Ness does. You know, if you if you look along the same, uh, what is it, is it the latitude? The same latitude, you, you seem to find reports of lake monsters within, you know, these uh, deep freshwater types of lakes. Yes, there is a little bit of a history of that. Now, a lot of this is very fresh in my mind at the moment. I just gave a presentation uh, last weekend about the Lake Champlain monster at a exhibit near Albany, New York. They have a museum, Do You Believe, exhibit, and they have some Bigfoot and mythical creature stuff. It's all fresh in my mind. I did a Loch Ness, or a, um, a Champ on the Trail of Champ documentary back in 2017 and 2018. And since then, I've mostly done Sasquatch stuff. So uh, statistically... Uh, Lake Champlain blows Loch Ness out of the water, and I'll tell you why in a moment here. Um, but you're right. They are two lakes that are very similar latitudes, northern hemisphere, formerly glaciated areas, heavy glacier wear. That's why the lakes kind of have the shape that they do. But Lake Champlain, as opposed to Loch Ness, is about 120 miles long. Uh, it's about 12 miles wide, 420 feet deep at the deepest, whereas uh, Loch Ness is, I believe, only – Less than 20 miles long, uh, only a few miles wide at the widest and uh, considerably deeper, seven to 800 feet, supposedly, at least that we know of. So um, they do have some similarities, but Lake Champlain is a much larger habitat. It also happens to be one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America. It's a world-class bass fishing spot. Uh, there's humongous fish such as sturgeon there. You've got, I have photo evidence of sturgeons in the past that have been pulled out of the lake that are easily 10 to 14 feet long, uh, which, you know, if that were to pull up next to your small kayak would be by definition a monster. Um, and uh, both Loch Ness and Lake Champlain do connect to the ocean, albeit in controlled manner. So Loch Ness connects to the Atlantic, the North Atlantic there in uh, through the River Ness, which goes through downtown Inverness, Scotland, and, and the other side through the Caledonian Canal, which is controlled with a lot of different locks. Water goes up and down, and there's it, you, you wouldn't be able to get in in one sort of swim. You, boats have to wait through the locks. And Lake Champlain is also connected to the ocean through the Hudson River and its southern point, which uh, kind of terminates out by New York City, of course. So 
right in that area. And again, it's controlled by locks and different measures of keeping certain parts of the water. So nothing that would be going in would essentially be able to get out or vice versa. And the northern part of Lake Champlain connects then to the St. Lawrence Seaway, eventually uh, in, through the province of Quebec and Canada. And there's actually a drop in elevation with the water and so whatever, if there's something in the lake, it would have to be trapped. But again, it is a massive environment, much more biodiverse than Lake than a Loch Ness. Loch Ness is not very well known for its huge amount of fish species. It's actually quite low. Uh, water is very murky with this peat kind of built up in there. Visibility is very low. Whereas Lake Champlain, I mean, I've seen humongous fish in Lake Champlain. It's very much a uh, much more viable habitat, in my opinion, for something that potentially might be unknown. Then uh, that's the question. Is there is there something? That's what we don't know. But if we're simply looking at statistically in terms of what's a better habitat, Lake Champlain is definitely uh, superior, at least in my view. Well, like... Uh like Loch Ness, Lake Champagne has had some uh, interesting on-the-land sightings of uh, uh, a strange creature as well. Yeah, there have been a few sightings that I'm aware of um, that have happened in the past. Nothing in recent history, at least in terms of the last 10 to 15 years. But I think back in the 70s and 80s, there was one gentleman I interviewed for my On the Trail of Champs series back in 2018. He described seeing this plesiosaur-looking creature on the beach near Port Henry, New York, which affectionately calls itself the home of Champ, and they have a, a sign, a famous sign with some of the sightings on it. And he saw this creature and kind of said it was kind of on the hanging out on the beach, close to the water, had a blackish, dark sort of skin, and almost white scratches and marks all over the body like you might see in a whale or perhaps a manatee which i thought was a very interesting detail we will have more with alexander further description and gene and tim you're in the podcast thank you for listening to gcn visit gcnlive.com today if you love mysteries, you'll love these two books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, The Others Among Us, you'll learn about the strange beings that can look like us, but are not. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll see the hard evidence of UFOs that has been ignored or even hidden. These books will definitely blow your mind, and both are now available on Amazon.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. SilverLungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at SilverLungs.com. That's SilverLungs.com. 
Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right, we cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. I'm Ben Utek. I played high school, college, and pro football, helping my team win the 2006 championship. It was an amazing day, but it can't compare to the joy I feel every day with my loving wife and three beautiful daughters. My football career ended after I suffered my fifth concussion. Did you know that over a million athletes suffer a concussion each year? That includes boys and girls, every age, every type and level of sport. It isn't always clear that a player has had a concussion. So parents, athletes, and coaches need to learn about concussion signs and symptoms. The American Academy of Neurology recommends athletes thought to have a concussion be immediately removed from play and not returned until assessed by a healthcare professional trained in concussion. This isn't just about sports. It's about your brain. When in doubt, sit it out. Learn more at aan.com slash concussion. That's aan.com slash concussion. A message from the American Academy of Neurology. What if Extendivite really works, but you find that hard to believe, and you spend precious time looking for someone to say, just try it. I have my help today because of Extendivite, and if I did not take a leap of faith and try it, well, I would be on disability today. Take one bottle of Extendivite as suggested for 60 days to find out for yourself. No need to stop any other meds you may be on. You know by now that they are not working for you. Before the 60 days are up, I know that you will feel Extendivite working for you and will want to take another bottle. Life is too short. Get your Extendivite today. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form for just $69.95 for a two-month supply. To get started, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Hi, this is Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Alexander Petikoff, Tim Swartz, Gene Steinberg. Alexander, you're in the middle of a description we'd like to hear more about yeah absolutely uh the sighting in port henry of uh, which i interviewed the the witness back in 2017 he described this creature with blackish brown dark sort of skin plesiosaur like with white scratches or marks along its body and on the sides not unsimilar to perhaps a whale or a manatee sort of aquatic kind of uh, animal interaction you might get from hitting a propeller or uh, scraping along rocks or whatever the case may be. I just thought that was a really interesting detail that he mentioned that. He said that this creature then swam off. Once it kind of noticed him pulling up in the car, got into the water and swam off and created a a big commotion in terms of waves and wakes and that sort of thing. Um, That's the only on-land sighting that I personally have taken. A number of the other eyewitnesses I've interviewed uh, described 
mostly in the water, you know, dinosaur-like head or just humps, uh, what a giant turtle-looking creature in the water. Um, uh, And actually, just this past weekend when I was at this convention in New York talking about Champ, I was told a very interesting story from Port Henry. I can't say it's Champ, but I find it pretty intriguing. I had a guy come up to my table and said, hey, so you're doing some of this Champ stuff. And I said, yes, I am. He said, well, you know, when I was 14 or 15, I was out on near Port Henry, New York, on Lake Champlain, doing some tubing with my family friends in their boat. And I was in a tube, and I got disconnected from the boat, and they were going up the bay to turn around and come back and get me. And he's just laying there in the tube with his legs kind of hanging in the mesh in between the tubing. And he says that something came up and put its mouth around his leg. He said it, it was a slow sort of cupping almost of his leg. Uh, he described it almost like a face. He, he didn't feel teeth or any pain. He said it was a slow and it just kind of wrapped around his leg. And then he he freaked out and started thrashing. And by the time the boat came back, everyone was kind of laughing and nobody took his sighting seriously. But he said he was around 14 or 15 at the time, which, you know, if he was six or seven, you know, maybe, okay, you might be exaggerating a bit. But as a teenager, you're already kind of in you have a little bit more of an ability to observe. So I thought that was really interesting because he didn't mention teeth again. Uh, if it was some sort of a big fish, maybe a sturgeon or a pike or something that might be present in the lake, uh, it would have been a thrash. Uh, if you've seen fish thrashing and catching other fish, I mean, it's a quick, violent motion. It would have been too big to be a lamprey. It basically wrapped around the whole lower part of his ca- part of his calf, as he described it. So I don't know what that is. That's very weird. There's a lot of strange things in Lake Champlain, um, but I'm I'm certainly no marine biologist, so I wouldn't be able to say. But uh, he thought it was a very weird kind of occurrence and uh, didn't really get a good look at whatever this was. But that's a, the freshest of the weird Lake Champlain stories I've been told. I thought that was very, very intriguing. I had run across the story, and uh, this, I and now, of course, I can't remember the exact details, but I, I think that this happened like back in the 1940s, where the witness was uh, on the shore somewhere and came across this, it was small but bigger than a normal salamander, is which is the way he described it. He said it looked like a large salamander, but still, I mean, you know, small enough that you know it wasn't like you know freaky size. But he said that he he did not recognize the species, and you know he'd lived there for quite a while, and then it it scampered off into the rocks. And then years later, he started to wonder, was that a baby champ? I just always found that, uh, you know, an interesting story. Interesting. I haven't heard that one specifically that I'm I'm personally aware of. I know there have been there was a case of somebody claiming that they had captured a baby champ and it turned out to be a mud puppy, which is a fairly mm. large salamander, which right. if you were to hold one, I mean it would you could hold it in kind of one hand how large they are. They're much larger than a normal salamander. I don't know about that case specifically, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised. There have been stories allegedly of people finding strange carcasses on washed up on the shore there other kinds of things like that so unfortunately with it being just a story you know we don't have any way of actually tracing kind of the origins or being able to figure it out but with a lot of these sightings and stories that's that's all we have is just the kind of anecdotal story of somebody seeing something and it it gets away that's what we're left with dealing with quite a bit in this topic but uh, yeah, that that's really interesting. I'll have to do more digging on that and see if I can dig up anything in uh, some of my archives on that. Well, I mean, and you also have, I mean, just the excellent work of uh, Katie Elizabeth, who uh, was the one who recorded some very interesting uh, audio 
from uh, uh, Lake Champagne. Yeah, actually, the original person who uh, got some of the kind of strange audio was a lady named Elizabeth von Muggenthaler. Um, this was back in the early 2000s. She had done some kind of work with bioacoustics before, and she was on Lake Champlain doing some research and claimed to have recorded echolocations, which are these kind of clicking sounds that whales and other animals use to sort of communicate underwater. That's what she claimed, and that was actually featured in the original first-ever episode of the show Monster Quest, which covered various cryptid creatures around the world. Uh, and that was uh, their Lake Champlain expedition they went out with on Muggenthaler. And I have actually known quite a few researchers who have subsequently passed away. Two of the, I think, best uh, champ researchers uh, which would have been uh, Scott Martis and William Drain Guinness. Uh, they were some great guys, and they did a lot of work on the topic, especially Scott Martis. He was probably one of the most knowledgeable people about lake monsters in general. Passed away just a couple of years ago. But they both worked with Von Muggenthaler before she kind of dropped off the radar in the mid to late, kind of early 2000s. And they said that, yeah, they thought it was really interesting, and they kind of adopted a little bit of the method as well of trying to look for some of the bioacoustic stuff. But it's something that's so uh, very hard to work with. You kind of have to know some of what you're doing, so it's not like you can just kind of pick it up. You kind of have to get some hands-on experience, maybe working with whales or other marine life that orcas, dolphins, that sort of thing that use this sort of echolocation. But the, the premise was that some th creature in Lake Champlain was producing echolocations. Now, I've seen some pushback to that, saying that maybe it was, it's, uh, we, we're starting to learn that fish can actually produce some sort of clicking and possible noises like that underwater. Uh, but it's it's still such a frontier. It's so, un there's so many questions, I should say. There's really not, nobody looking at that very intensely, at least in terms of an academic kind of, there's no university that's studying, is there something in Lake Champlain echolocating, right? It's just mostly people who are enthusiasts who take it up into their own hands. You have um, drumfish, which yes. are, you know, I mean, they're, they're practically everywhere in North America, and they've actually have, <laughs> they have rocks in their head that they'll uh, click together to make a, a very distinctive noise. And, and you know, there's all kinds of, uh, of freshwater uh, uh, fish that will make weird noises. All you have to do is just uh, uh, you know, swim around in these lakes and stick your head underwater, and you can hear some things that can you know, scare the hell out of you if, you're not, uh, if you don't know what you're listening to. That's a great point. Yes, drumfish is a great example. I've actually heard some of the alleged uh, Lake Champlain echolocation recordings have been explained away as just drumfish by some people who uh, are more in the know. So that is absolutely a possibility. Uh, that's the thing. How, you know, how many people do you know that own a, uh, a device that's able to, a microphone essentially that goes underwater that you're able to listen for uh, echolocations with? It's not something that's very common, right? So um, we don't know. I mean, there's so much we're, we're unfamiliar with when it comes to the water. And a lot of people have a fear of the water. It's just something that's very unusual and it's not our domain, right? Humans are not adapted at all to be underwater. So that's why I think even the ocean, when it comes to cryptozoology or just mysteries, how, how vast the ocean is and how much there is uh, unknown in the oceans, it's, it's kind of frightening. And most of the world is ocean. So that's what I think a lot of people don't really realize um, but it's it's something that makes people uncomfortable whether it be stuff like jaws or just kind of the vast expanses of of uh wilderness it's not wilderness in the forested sense but it's wilderness of ocean and it's all underneath so it's, it, it invokes a lot of mystery i think does the vastness of the area you have to pick from 
explain very much why it's so difficult to nail this down. Yeah, I absolutely do believe so. I think you look at, uh, for example, I just spent about a month and a half up in Alaska. Uh, so I actually drove from the east coast of the U.S. all the way up to Alaska. And you just you think you know how large North America is. And before that, you know, I'd been to Alaska before. I'd been to parts of Canada, lower 48 U.S. It's a huge place. But once you physically drive across the continent from one side to the other, you you truly realize how large it is and how much there is how little there is, I should say, between points A and points B. There's, uh, especially Canada. I think Canada is a, a really prime example of this. It's the second largest country on earth, right after Russia. I mean, there's just land mass wise, Canada is is incredible, uh, and its population is what. 30 million. I mean, it's far less than the United States, and most of that population lives within a few hours' drive of the U.S. border. And almost, I think, 60 to 70 percent of that population lives south of North Dakota. Hey, you know what? Let's go into more of this. Do some more exploration with Alexander, Tim, and Jane. You're in the Paracast. listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, the Paracast dot plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast dot plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Former CIA officer and survival expert Jason Hansen here. I teach people how to prepare for the unexpected. Right now, most Americans are not ready for the death of the U.S. dollar. You have money sitting in cash, and if you don't act soon, your financial future could be at risk. I have partnered with Advantage Gold, the number one rated precious metals company in America, to release my new digital dollar survival kit that's 100% free for everyone who calls today and claims your free survival kit. Simply call 800-900-8000 and give your email address, and I will have this new digital dollar survival kit sent to you immediately. Call 1-800-900-8000 now and claim your free kit, and also mention my name, Jason Hansen, and see how you could also qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Supplies are limited, so call right now before it's too late. Call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So you drove from New Hampshire to Alaska? 
Yeah, with a stu- few stops along the way, but I drove that whole distance, and I spent about a month in Alaska doing various films and uh, research. Went out to a location out there in Alaska. We've coined Area A. That's uh, had a lot of very interesting activity. It's a remote cabin that's over an hour boat ride from the nearest small port on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, which is these epic mountains, uh, these uh, temperate rainforests nestled in between these gigantic mountains. So, uh, again, driving across the continent, you see how much space there is. Canada, sparsely populated, mostly woods, uh, a lot of moose and just bear and wildlife out there. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And uh, the, the Alaska Highway, which goes from northern British Columbia to Delta Junction, Alaska, was built during the Second World War by the United States to link up Alaska, which at the time was a territory, with the lower 48 there was fear of Japanese attacks at the time, and there were actually some limited kind of scuffles in some of the Aleutian Island chain there with Japan during the Second World War. So this Alaska Highway is about 1,400 miles long today. It's still the main route, land route from the lower 48 into Canada and then into Alaska. And you could you could drive any section of this Alaska Highway basically outside of the little towns along the way, and I could hike off a mile off of that road and never be seen again and just disappear into endless wilderness out there so it's it's staggering to imagine how much space is out there it's actually really again difficult to imagine uh i feel lucky to have had the perspective to be able to see it not only from the air but physically having you know mile by mile traveled across much of the continent there is a lot of empty space such as the midwest the united states section of the midwest and then into canada saskatchewan alberta there's just Nothing but fields as far as you can see, but some of those mountain chains along the West Coast and other areas, the boreal forest, especially going from northern Canada into Alaska, is just vast, vast space of nothingness and one of the largest forests on Earth. I guess you can have all sorts of things going on there and people would never know. But that highway that you're talking about there, going to Alaska, is that a two-lane road, like an interstate what? Yeah, it's it's uh, basically it's just a two lane road with a dash in the middle. It's not anything like a. It, it's called the Alaska Highway, right? But it's really just a two lane road, uh, very poorly maintained in some sections. Like the last section, when you're in the Yukon Territory, heading towards the Alaska border, there's a lot of what we around here call frost heaves, which is the winter. It'll tear the road up and kind of create bumps as the as the ground freezes and expands. So there's a lot of bumpy sections. So it's yeah, it's it's called a highway because it's a route, but I would it's more of a two lane kind of road that just goes through through much of northern British Columbia, the Yukon, and into Alaska. Mountainous or flat or what? Very much mountainous. So uh, when you start out, you're in kind of the plains of Alberta, right in the British Columbia, and then as soon as you start driving, you're paralleling the northern Canadian Rocky Mountains, which is the northern terminus of the Rocky Mountains, which start all the way in New Mexico and kind of go that full distance. But uh, those northern Rocky Mountains, very rugged. You're driving through absolutely beautiful scenery. You cross into the Yukon, there's still mountains. And then as you get towards uh, Alaska and the kind of coastal section of the Yukon, you're passing by the Wrangell Mount, Wrangell St. Elias area, the Wrangell Mountain Range, which is one of the largest coastal mountain ranges on Earth. I mean, you start seeing those mountains and you say, wow, those are those are truly majestic. And Alaska, of course, has Mount Denali slash McKinley, which is the largest mountain in North America. But a couple of the peaks in the Wrangell Range as well are some of the highest 
in in North America. So you start seeing those mountains. So you're, you're kind of driving past this the whole time. It's an incredibly scenic route. I mean, it's it's breathtaking. Uh, but you're driving through pretty much just woods and hills and mountains the entirety of the the route, aside from just a handful of little towns and and villages you pass through, which is pretty much the only kind of human presence you have in the area. When you talk about this, I think of what happened like 30 years ago or 40 years ago when the wife and I went from L.A. to San Francisco, courtesy of the Pacific Coast Highway. Yeah, it's a sound, I've heard it's quite a scenic highway as well. Oh, yeah. I don't like driving across mountains, though. So I didn't enjoy that ride at all. The next time I wanted to do it, I said, you know what? Airplane. And of course, they'll never build a railway from L.A. to San Francisco, a proper railway. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think driving is a great way to see, you know, you get a little bit more of an intimate kind of understanding of the land and how it works. And and you just try to imagine what it was like trying to build some of these roads and highways that go through some of these remote areas and the the hardships that the people who built these roads went through. Uh, It's pretty staggering to think about, actually. But when you're on that drive, I think it's easy to see how something like a Sasquatch could be living, not just one, (laughs) but whole family groups, and probably never be seen. Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. Um, And I actually just put my entire... A journey of the Alaska Highway in a recent documentary I did called the Alaska Bigfoot Highway. And throughout the whole drive, there were places that alluded to kind of Sasquatch uh, stuff. There was a place called Sasquatch Crossing. It was a small motel in northern British Columbia. But I was looking at some of the uh, maps, such as the Bigfoot Mapping Project, as well as a Canadian Sasquatch sightings map. And so many of the sightings happened along the Alaska Highway. Um, And they're like many very classic Sasquatch sightings, road crossings where large, hairy, mysterious creature crosses the road in front of cars. This is very common across North America, actually, but the Alaska Highway is no exception. And along the way, I heard stories from researchers and other people I got to meet who told me about encounters that happened directly along the Alaska Highway and, and areas nearby. So that's why I kind of jokingly called the documentary the Alaska Bigfoot Highway, because uh, there was virtually any section of the highway you could look at long stretches and find some sort of archive of a sighting that happened in the 1940s or even right after the construction of the highway to modern day accounts uh, the stories relayed to me by folks who have driven that and ex- had experiences. So I found those interesting. I, I, I've never seen more wildlife in one sort of short period than I had while on the Alaska highway. There was, I saw it one day we saw, almost a dozen bear just along the side of the road between black bears and one grizzly bear. So the amount of wildlife out there was unbelievable. So maybe that's the reason why there's a lot of Sasquatch sightings. I don't know, but I thought the name Sasquatch uh, or Alaska Bigfoot Highway kind of fit with the theme of my film about it. Well, that also explains why we can't nail down a lot of these mysteries. There is so much unexplored area, land masses, the seas. Maybe we will never know what lies out there we'll just get glimpses yeah i I agree i mean i think again having had the chance to see some of it firsthand whether it be the you know i could take you to a place in little old new hampshire and make you feel like you're 
on the edge of the edge of the world in terms of you could fall off a cliff and never be seen again. And that's eclipsed entirely by a place like Alaska or I've been in swamps in Florida that go on forever that are larger than the size of Rhode Island. I mean, there's there's so much space out there still and even very populated places and states like Florida or Louisiana where uh, there's all kinds of strange things, and strange stories. But once you start looking at those mountainous environments, whether they be the Appalachians or the Rocky Mountains, the Cascades, the Sierra Nevadas, and certainly up into northern Canada and Alaska, there is still, I mean, millions and millions of acres, billions of trees, uh, thousands of mountains, no, no way that we could explore all of this uh, on, you know, in a lifetime, let alone in 10 lifetimes. Uh, you could focus on one area and not have explored the whole whole section, but then you see how large everything is. It just it kind of it's staggering, actually, and it, it makes you realize how insignificant an individual actually is in such an environment. Well, the odds seem pretty decent that something strange is going to be out there just based on the distances we have to look into. And forested areas are not going to be obvious when you're getting a satellite picture. We understand that, too. But I wonder here, and we could pursue this in our next segment, what is there that can be done to get mainstream science to take any of this more seriously than they do now? Because it always seems as if people who chase after cryptids are thought of as being mm, wee bit wacky. Alexander, Gene, and Tim, you're in. Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. All across the country, people are coming together to speed up what we can learn about health. 
The All of Us Research Program is calling on one million people to join us as we try to change the future of health. For your family, for future generations, for all of us. Visit joinallofus.org and find out how you can become one in a million. Are you paying too much for term life insurance? There's a tremendous price war among the major term life companies. Rates have dropped dramatically in the past few years. For example, a man age 45 non-tobacco user. $1 million of coverage is only $75 per month. Level for the next 10 years. Or a man age 50 non-tobacco user can buy a half million dollars of coverage for a monthly premium of only $110. Guaranteed not to change for the next 20 years. That's right. Level rates for 20 years. And if you're a smoker we have great rates for you as well at the term lifeline we specialize in policies of a half million dollars and above so if you're looking for new or replacement term life insurance call right now for a free quote rates and availability may vary by state sample rate quotes are based on preferred not tobacco underwriting exam required to qualify 800-430-1891 800-430-1891 that's 800-430-1891 G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at TeamG'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at TeamG'day.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your Longevity business. TeamG'day.com. TeamG'day.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So, Alexander, what do you think can be done to persuade mainstream science to look into this more? Yeah, I think this is a question that's asked quite a bit. I think really the only possibility, and I don't know if it'll ever happen, is some sort of a uh, viable corpse or part of a corpse of a Sasquatch. Basically, a body would be needed to satisfy science. I mean, there are ways in which other species, other primates and other animals have been proven by uh, footage along with audio vocalizations and maybe some DNA samples using kind of a multi-tiered evidential approach. But I don't know if it's possible without something as, as a, it just seems like a tall order to a lot of people, right? The idea that there is this six to eight foot tall ape-like creature living in parts of North America. Uh, it's just a very tall order. So I understand the skepticism. I think it's warranted in a lot of cases, but um, I don't know at this point what could be done other than that. There are currently some ongoing DNA studies. There's one being run by a guy named Darby Orcutt, a professor from University of Northern uh, or University of North Carolina, excuse me, I believe, uh, who's collecting samples. So perhaps some DNA evidence might be yielded from that. Uh, but even with that, I mean, nowadays, if we, if I was to get crystal clear HD footage of a Sasquatch tomorrow, I, I don't think it would make a difference uh, because we live in this era of AI, of CGI, of digital effects manipulations video and that sort of thing is not going to be good enough you're going to need a video that can be 
absolutely corroborated as authentic, along with, say, vocalizations, DNA evidence, repeatability. And I think that's the big issue with this topic is that if this was a repeatable phenomena, if, if these, this was predictable, we would have solved it a long time ago, right? I mean, even some of the chimps and gorillas and other primates that exist, when researchers such as Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall were looking into these creatures, it took them months before they could even have a some sort of a glimpse of one of these great apes in jungles in Africa and elsewhere. But uh, with this topic, it just seems so all across the board. Uh, there's some consistencies in terms of behavior, but not where they will be and that sort of thing. So, um, And then you throw into the equation a lot of the weirder stories. Some people, A lot of people now lean more towards a paranormal explanation, which I don't think will bode well in terms of science, in terms of acceptability, saying that these might be paranormal entities doesn't doesn't really strike in the credibility department so it's a bit of an uphill battle i don't know again finding some kind of irrefutable evidence would really be the only thing that would convince mainstream science but um i don't know i don't know if it's possible or if it's if it's going to happen i just know there's something going on i've talked to far too many people and i had some strange experiences myself that kind of stretch the believability in terms of being something explainable and just again having seen how much space is out there it, it's like looking for a, a moving haystack a moving needle in 15 haystacks it's a really tall order when it comes to dna evidence to what do you compare it? If it's an unknown species, it's going to look different. Right. It resembles certain creatures. Maybe it resembles an ape, but not quite that ape. What do you compare it with? I don't know, because if you look, I'm not an expert in DNA or anything like that. I just know what I've been told by uh, far more competent people who are more in academia, that people that I know that are scientists and work with DNA. You look at something like a gen bank or something where they have biological information on species, they don't have anything to really compare it to, right? I mean, uh, we share such a genetic similarity with chimps and gorillas, yet look how different we are from those animals, right? We're bipedal. We use language. We have culture. We use tools in a much more advanced sense than chimps or gorillas. Yet we're so genetically identical that there's been uh, certain things that have been mistaken in the past where people have thought, oh, it's actually this is chimp DNA. But then it turns out to be deteriorated human DNA. That's how similar these are. So imagine something like a Sasquatch. I personally think it might be something a lot more closer to humans. There's a lot of these kind of hominins and hominids we're discovering that we didn't know about previously and all over the place, trying to kind of fill in the gaps. Uh, who knows what it could be? But the descriptions are of a bipedal creature. None of the other apes out there, at least great apes, are bipedal, which in involves a completely different type of a spinal structure and just body in general to be bipedal. The, the footprints... In a large part, while, while they may look like human footprints are actually quite different, some of the Sasquatch uh, footprints, and that's something that people like Dr. Jeff Meldrum, who's an expert in foot morphology, would know far better than I would. But you see these kinds of things that they look different in terms of some of the reporting of sightings and that sort of thing than some of the great apes. So there's a parallel with some of the behaviors, which I find interesting. You know, for example, a recent one I just learned of, there were some researchers from uh, the Congo doing extensive research on mountain gorillas and have discovered that mountain gorillas can use infrasonic vocalizations, which have an effect on female gorillas. Prior to that, we didn't think infrasound was something that apes could do. Infrasound is this uh, frequency that we can't hear uh, as human beings, and a lot of different animals, such as tigers and elephants and other animals, can use it to communicate 
uh, at great distances, but it's a frequency that we are not able to hear. But as humans, we can be affected by it. Uh, infrasound can create feelings of dread, uh, anxiousness, even nausea in some cases, from, from I believe from the reading I've done. So you have stories of decades, and I personally know people who have had Sasquatch encounters where they've been roared at or vocalized by one of these things and felt a vibration in their chest, almost feeling paralyzed or paralyzed in fear or just like time froze kind of thing some people call it being zapped nowadays but the fact that gorillas can use these vocalizations to have an effect on their females i think is a very interesting precedent you've also have uh, reports of sasquatch odor in not all of reports but quite a few of them including stories of the skunk ape in florida said to be very smelly um and there's very many sasquatch reports again not even more than 50 percent of reports have smell but that is an element people reporting it smelled like a gorilla house at the zoo or rotting meat wet dog you hear these descriptions quite a bit and the gorillas can actually control their scent glands they can control their body odor if they're irritated or agitated they can release their scent glands which create this very offensive odor supposedly to kind of thwart any kind of aggression or anything so the fact that you have multiple of these kinds of behaviors that are being reported in Sasquatch, in some cases like the smell and the vocalizations that are now known to be ape behaviors that previously were not, I think speaks to a very interesting kind of parallel there in terms of at least some kind of ape-like qualities being found in these alleged Sasquatch reports. Talking about the DNA, and this is just over the last couple of years, you know, one of these Bigfoot hunting shows got a, a, a DNA sample from Kentucky, possibly within the same uh, region that you got the uh, infrared uh, video. But when the results came back, it was identified as pandroglodyte, which is chimpanzee. Yes, that's an interesting example. That's actually the one I directly referenced to a little bit ago. Um, I actually know about that particular case. It was claimed to be pantroglodyte, but uh, I actually know somebody who, after the show, contacted the lab that did the testing, and the lab said it turned out to be deteriorated human DNA. We told the producers this, but they told the story they wanted to, in that it mm. was probably chimp and not deteriorated human, because that makes for better entertainment, because sure. that's a TV show that's not really interested in truth. It's interested in promoting themselves and obviously a revenue stream. This goes back to my uh, past rants <laughs> about <laughs> these reality television shows and how they are meant to sell commercials. Speaking of commercials, we'll be back with Alexander, Tim, and Gene. You're in yeah, the Pentecast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. 
Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right. We cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. USA News Update. President Biden was on the ground Saturday in Florida touring the historic damage from Hurricane Idalia. He vowed to give the government support to those in need across the state. Jimmy Buffett has died. Known for the tune Margaritaville, the laid-back singer-songwriter was 76. Former Clinton cabinet member Bill Richardson died Friday at the age of 75. Richardson was also governor of New Mexico from 2003 to 2011. A new poll gives former President Trump a 46-point lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The survey from the Wall Street Journal also has Trump and Biden deadlocked in a general election. At the movies, Barbie has become the highest-grossing film of the year worldwide with over $1.3 billion. Jerry Barmash, USA News. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, formerly Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, Air National Guard and Reservist. I'm looking for veterans, active duty military personnel to join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. She needs your skills, courage, and loyalty more than ever. Contact GCNteam.com. Because of the financial and health care collapse, veterans are currently struggling finding jobs. Frustrated looking for a job? Change your tactics. Join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. Start a health care business with FDI Longevity 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com immediately. We're looking for military specialists who can use a computer and communicate information and execute a battle plan. Join the admirals, Navy SEALs, Marines, pilots, Army officers, military police, sheriffs, police officers, firemen, and first responders already enrolled in the 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com now. FDI Longevity will help you apply your military skills to the task of saving America through health and financial programs. Contact GCNteam.com. Enlist in GCNteam.com and save America. Extend your life with Extendovite. Everyone around me seems to get sick but me. My brother got the flu twice. My mother was down with some sort of fever. People at work were taking sick days off and others were just plain tired and run down. And me? Well, I just keep feeling great all the time with Extendovite. My grandfather used to talk about the power of garlic and other herbs he took that kept him healthy. I'm lucky. Extendovite was just what I needed to keep me healthy. And Extendivite is all natural. Extendivite was designed for the heart but does so much more by keeping me healthy all the time. I'll take Extendivite forever. Get your two-month supply for only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. My name is Rick and you can be like me. Just by calling 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendivite. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Yes, there is that, Tim Swartz, that these reality shows are there to sell advertising, get eyeballs so you watch the ads. You don't do what I do, which is fast forward. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And that's the great thing about being an independent creator. Uh, and I'm blessed to be able to be in this position where I can tell my stories and I don't have a network executive tapping my shoulder saying, well, can you add these fake vocalizations in to make it a little more interesting? When I go out in the field, I get to show people the reality. If we have nothing happen, that's exactly what you'll see. You may learn some other things about nature and the environment along the way, but if we have something happen, we'll absolutely show you and we'll try to run through the possibilities of what it could have been or what might not have been. Uh, and I think that's the great thing about having the independent voice where we don't have to worry about pushing a certain narrative. We get to tell the story authentically. And again, I'm, I'm blessed to be in this position. And, and I will say that particular show that we talked about with DNA uh, sampling, they've actually lifted a few ideas from us, in our opinion. Mm. It's funny to kind of see that sort of thing. But yeah, unfortunately, TV, I think a large part does not have the truth as an interest in terms of these topics, whether they be cryptozoology or paranormal, I think, uh, especially when reality TV became quite present, that it's a lot cheaper to produce reality TV than, say, a show like Monster Quest, which I think was one of the last great shows in the vein of In Search Of, and some of those programs from that I think a lot of people grew up on that seemed to treat the subjects with more respect than the reality TV spectrum, whereas doing DNA tests and sending people on expeditions is very expensive, and especially if you're just trying to tell it truthfully. Sending a bunch of people out in the woods to just kind of parade around with some, some fancy equipment and instigate some drama that's that's a lot cheaper to produce so i think that's why we see a lot of reality tv nowadays more so than we do shows that try to take the topic seriously which is why i think folks like myself at small town monsters and certainly other independent creators have found audiences that feel either neglected or abused by those those big networks for that reason i think we've found success and we found people that are very interested in not being lied to about what is going on out there and you know kind of a in vain of some of those older shows that took it a little more seriously. You made a reference earlier in the show about how not every knock or every whoop in the woods is going to be a Bigfoot. And it made me think about uh, an, an incident where I was with a couple of uh, fairly well-known Bigfoot hunters up in the, uh, the, the upper Midwest, and we heard a call in the woods, and immediately I knew it was a buck white-tailed deer. But the other two guys I was with were like, oh, what is that? And it's like, oh, my God, you don't know the difference? <laughs> I grew up, you know, more in a, in, in a rural area where, you know, lots of deer and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I know the sounds you know, at, at night of these kinds of things. It's very clearly, a, you know, a, a buck. But these guys were just like, oh, you know, scrambling to get their recorder out and everything and couldn't. And so, I mean, you know, even people who are supposed to be experienced with this kind of stuff can be fooled by mundane sounds. Absolutely. And I think that's why, as I was talking about earlier, it's so important to just get out and learn as much as you can about the environment you're in so as to avoid situations like that. If you're able to say, wow, that is a barred owl I'm hearing, hmm. despite it sounding like a very monkey-like woo kind of whooping, it's actually a barred owl. You know, and, and that's the great thing. And I think it's important to be humble about it and realize we're all fallible. We can all make mistakes. If you can own up to it and say, well, that that thing I thought was a Bigfoot on recording, we've actually found out it was not. And be able to be honest about that, I think, is great. But uh, And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about. We, we, most people have had these instincts, these natural instincts, eradicated from them, in a sense, 
by living in some of these urban and suburban areas, uh, as we go more and more towards that as a species, I guess, we lose just some of those basic instincts. Our ancestors who lived on a homestead would have had, not because they needed to learn it for any particular reason, because it was a daily part of life. Oh, yeah. You know, I hear deer in the woods outside on my property. You know, it's not a lot of people live that way anymore. So we've just lost that. And I think you get people that are interested in a topic like Bigfoot. Maybe they haven't spent a lot of time in the woods. They go out there. They hear, as such as in your case, a white-tailed buck making a sound. And then they enter that into the database as a potential Class B Bigfoot audio encounter. And then somebody else picks that up and said, there might be Bigfoot in this area. We should go investigate in this area based off of a false report. So then we're in a little bit of a quagmire there, whereas we have something that, you know, maybe it wasn't maliciously put in there. Again, those people seem to be uh, just mistaken by what they heard, but then that becomes part of the data set. So we have to work twice as hard to vet out that sort of thing. Uh, and then something like that maybe comes to light and maybe a witness who is from a a professional background, law enforcement or a lawyer who've had a, an incredible encounter with the Sasquatch, hears about, well, these people are going out in the woods and they're hearing barred owls and saying in Sasquatch, I'm not going to tell anyone my story. And time and time again, I've run into that kind of thing where, especially here in the Northeast, it's like pulling teeth. You get an excellent eyewitness who has an impeccable, uh, not only credentials, but sta- social standing in their communities. And they have a sighting that them coming forward that sighting will will only hurt, harm them in terms of you know in terms of their life it, it it won't bring them any benefit and yet they've had this encounter so you're you're kind of it, it's a delicate balance uh, because you're dealing with uh something something is going on but unfortunately a lot of what is being reported is conjecture and flat out misidentifications or even flat out hoaxing there's a lot of that as well so i think we're dealing with a lot in this topic and it can be overwhelming, but uh, it is rewarding, I think, in another sense. And if uh, if somebody has never heard a barred owl before, if they hear that, I could see how they would think it was something weird. I, I had uh, an encounter with one just this spring where I first I heard it flying around the neighborhood. It was dark, but it would stop at various locations and then shriek. <laughs> and then it would move to another location and shriek again. And the sound of this thing, I mean, it was it was it it was like a, ro- a high pitched roar almost, you know, like Rah! like that. And yep. th- and then at one point, it must have landed on like the fence post in my backyard because it was so close. When it screamed, I was like, nope, I'm going inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been there multiple times with people in the woods the first time they've ever heard a barred owl. And you just look at their face, this moment of shock, and, and I'll tell them, hey, that was an owl. That's a barred owl. Mm-hmm. They said, no way. That sounds like primate-like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem is, when, you know, we have to be able to identify this kind of th- stuff. And that's why I think it's great for people to just pick up a book about your local wildlife, watch some videos if you're more into that. You know, you can watch YouTube videos with owl compilations. Try to learn about your particular area you might be researching and find out what animals you might have that might be able to be mistaken with something Sasquatch-like or just stuff you don't know about. So uh, we're certainly all able to make mistakes, but I think being able to learn more to avoid that kind of thing is important as well. Well, the same goes for like um, bobcats, cougars. If you've ever heard those uh, (laughs) calling in the woods, uh, I mean, that that would make your hair stand on end. I mean, you know, the uh, 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 
even a bobcat. You know, we we have those here, and and supposedly, you know, there's some cougars that have now came in. You know, uh, moved into southern Indiana, but yep. uh, you know, they'll they sound like you know women screaming, children yes. children laughing. Yeah, you know, it's it's. It, eerie <laughs> yeah i mean that's the thing coyotes as well i, I mm-hmm. recommend people look up coyote vocalizations they can make such a wide spectrum of calls and there's one particular call that the males will do a male coyote usually when he's separated from the pack will do this blood curdling scream call and there's a variation of them there's some very rare ones that absolutely i've been out in the woods and thought my god there is nothing that could be other than a Sasquatch. And then you hear the other coyotes start yipping. You say, oh, okay. So it, it kind of it connects. And there's actually uh, a researcher I mentioned earlier, Thomas Steenberg from out in British Columbia, who's one of the kind of last great old school sort of researchers we have that goes back towards earlier times of the Sasquatch topic, talked about uh, an interesting recording. Let's talk about the interesting recording. Our next segment with Gene and Alexander and Tim, you're in. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. It's obvious we're being let down by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media are distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the real concerns of American families. Countries we're at odds with are hoarding food, financial systems are strained, and supply chains remain too fragile. We can tell something is coming, so we're preparing. Folks are getting into self-reliance and investing in emergency food storage. And My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, makes it easy for you to have peace of mind knowing you're prepared. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure some emergency food kits. There's a dozen to choose from that contain tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one food kit for each family member. And while you're there, stock up on water filtration, heirloom seeds, and emergency gear, too, at MyPatriotSupply.com. It's time to prepare today. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com.
These are the sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do yourself a favor. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, stay off the phone. A message from CTIA. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. And I'm going to give you a free copy of my lecture that tells you exactly how to do it. In fact, after you've lived a long and healthy life, there should be only two documents in your medical chart, a birth certificate and a death certificate. I'm Dr. Wallach with a warning. If you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, and other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. My free lecture is going to reveal what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in my free lecture called Deadly Recipe. So call toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. Again, that's toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. 1-855-79-YOUNG. This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So then tell me about this recording, Alexander. I'm curious. Yes, yeah, and it directly relates to our conversation about the coyote misidentifications. So there were these series of recordings from an area of British Columbia near where the term Sasquatch originated in southern BC. And this researcher, Thomas Steenberg, had gotten wind of it, and they went to this area and investigated. And one night, they heard the call, and they thought, wow, this is going to be it. This is where we're going to find out about the Sasquatch. And it turned out to be a male coyote, and they physically saw it right after it made the call coming out. And they were able to deduce that that's actually a very rare male coyote call. And that discovery then, looking at other alleged Bigfoot audio recordings from the past, was very similar. So we were able to kind of determine, okay, that is actually a very rare male coyote call. That explains a few of the other potential Bigfoot recordings that have been out there floating around for quite a while. So it just goes to show that animals can do very strange things. Just because there's a catalog of certain sounds that animals will make doesn't mean that's the only thing they're limited to doing. They can do things that maybe people have never heard them do, or maybe you've only heard it, but it's never been recorded. So I think, again, that's why it warrants a lot of vigilance in this topic uh, because we're up against a lot of different factors, whether they be misidentifications or purposeful hoaxes or wishful thinking, confirmation bias, you name it. Well, there's been lots of uh, very interesting recordings of uh, supposed uh, Sasquatch calls. I mean, have you heard any that you think, yeah, that's 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 probably you know one? And I'm thinking of. I think the one of the older ones that was taken, uh, I think it was recorded in, in Ohio. And then there was the, uh, what was it, the, uh, the one that sounded almost like Chinese-type gibberish that was out in the Pacific Northwest, I think, is where that one was recorded. But there are, there, there are others. Any of those that you, know, you think uh, uh, could actually uh, uh, be legitimate? Yeah, so you're talking about the Ohio howl, I believe, from the early 1990s from... Yep. I want to say Cumberland County, Ohio. That's a really interesting one. That's a typical howl that a lot of people report. 
uh, and that's just happens to be recording. I think it's, it sounds very interesting. I don't, I don't know if I can determine if it's real or not, but it's certainly very unusual. Uh, there's also the ones, the second ones you talked about, the Sierra sounds, which are pretty interesting. I don't know what's going on there, but there's a lot of really strange recordings that doesn't seem to match any of the known animals in that area in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So that's pretty intriguing. Um, some of the stuff I've personally heard, I've heard a couple whoops and things out in Northern California near Bluff Creek, where the famous Patterson Gimlin footage was taken, where it's a combination of factors. There was, uh, you know, frightened dog in camp. There were things being thrown, wood knock type sounds and a whoop like vocalization that kind of all were pretty interesting. But some of the recordings that, were taken out in this location that I've been to twice now in uh, remote Alaska that I was talking about. It's featured in my documentary series called the Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch. Uh, are these very interesting recordings of a remote cabin that was built in the middle of nowhere in these coastal rainforests in Alaska. And they started having a lot of strange things happening to them, rocks being thrown, equipment being messed with, things like that. Just very unusual kind of typical activity. And they started putting up audio recorders, and there's a lot of strange audio of, of weird howls. Sounds almost like monkey-like, gibbon-like, uh, as well as what sounds almost like speaking. Not speaking, but just kind of ape-like mumbling, strange noises, things being thrown. Just a lot of this stuff on audio, strange footprints found. Uh, we went out there. I've been out there twice now went out last year we went for a week and we had rocks thrown at us and heard some of the clearest wood knocks we heard these mystery gunshot sounds that would just randomly happen that maybe are knocks coming from up on the hill uh other kinds of stuff stomping around at night while we're sleeping in the tent and i went back for two weeks this past summer while i was in alaska same property and uh you know similar kind of stuff happening but a lot of the recordings were pretty intriguing uh, that happened before we went to the location. And I'm currently working on a series called Dark Coast Hunt for the Alaskan Bigfoot, which covers the two-week expedition to this location. We had found some kind of interesting footprint kind of evidence in the moss, if we can call it evidence. But uh, some of those recordings that come from that property are pretty compelling, in my opinion, because they don't match any of the wildlife found in that area. Uh, they're very interesting. There's even one recording, which I don't know what it is, but... It sounds like a child crying, um, and we've tried to match it up to porcupines and otters and other other creatures that do make crying-like noises. But the strangest part about that recording is that it was only ever heard when women were present on the property. Uh, and statistically, the amount of times that people have been out there are mostly men and have not heard anything like this. And it only happens when the women are around are strange. And uh, a lot of the First Nations people in Alaska talk about what they call the Otter Man or the Kushtaka, uh, which is kind of described as the Sasquatch-like creature that can swim between islands and channels. And there have been sightings of Sasquatch seen swimming between bays and islands. Uh, and they say that the Otter Man makes this baby crying sound to lure women in. In some of their folklore, they talk about Sasquatches stealing women and children. So it's unusual. I don't know what to make of it. Obviously, there can be other explanations, but I just find those some of those uh, some of that stuff from Area A in Alaska to be pretty intriguing. You hear that a lot from various Native American tribes, you know, all across uh, North America. The the interest uh, that uh, Sasquatch has towards women and children. 
Yes, yeah, there seems to be some tribes, not all of them, some groups and some First Nations people have these sorts of stories where there's maybe it's just a cautionary tale, such as the boogeyman, you know, keep the kids out of the woods. Hey, there's the wild man is there. Don't go too far into the woods uh, just to keep them safe. Right. But some stories talk about them stealing children and women. And uh, just this past May, I was in British Columbia and I got to spend some time with the New Hulk Nation, which is a wonderful group of people in the remote valley of coastal British Columbia called Bella Coola. And they they talk about, in their worldview, the Sninik is this Sasquatch-like creature that carries a basket around and steals children and puts them in the basket. But that's kind of their their folkloric origins. And they showed me their 12,000-year-old petroglyphs that mm. contain a uh, creature they call, the, it almost looks like E.T. head, alien head. And they say that's the cosmic Sninik, and that's kind of where they're, uh, where the world was born from was from the cosmic Sninik, which I thought was really interesting. So some some tribes I've talked to in Northern California, they say it's a protector of the woods. Others say it's a forest devil or not even a devil, but a forest kind of malicious entity. It depends who you talk to. And I think that comes down to humans. We have different interpretations. And something I heard about a long time ago that's always stuck with me was the work of Dr. Anna Nakaris, who is a believe anthropologist and primatologist from uh, the UK and she was giving a presentation at a cryptozoology conference put on by Lauren Coleman and she told the story of working on researching slow lorises which are these small nocturnal primates live in parts of Indonesia and she said we were dealing with the same animal and all in this kind of jungle uh, rainforest environment but you'd go to four different villages that all had different people groups and each group had a different story for the same creatures. So one group would say, if you saw a slow loris, it was a curse and you need to kill it right away. Whereas just a few miles away in a different valley, the other tribe would say, if you saw a slow loris, it was great luck. It meant something nice was coming to you. And another tribe would say, if you saw a slow loris, it was a demon. You need to run away. So it's just we're dealing with the same creature here, but there's such a vast in difference in interpretation. I think that that may be the case as well with a lot of the First Nations groups, as it is with people around the world. We all have different ways of trying to rationalize things that we don't understand. So now, your your recent trip to Alaska, doing your research, why go through that trouble when I think that, I don't think that there is a single state in the United States, with the exception of maybe Hawaii, that doesn't have Sasquatch sightings. So, are there that many of them that, you know, that, that, that they've spread out all across North America? Or is there maybe um, oh, um, 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 migration routes? You know, like uh, the, during the summertime, they, they stay further north, and then as it starts to get cold, maybe they start to uh, move south. It'd be nice to see the roots of migrating Sasquatch, wouldn't it? We have more to come. We have Alexander Petikoff. We have Gene Steinberg. And we've got a lot more to talk about. And by the way, Alexander will be hanging with us for the After the Paracast podcast, where there's so many things to talk about. I also want to get more into window areas, specific places that appear to attract more weird stuff. And a reminder also, Alexander has the Alaska Bigfoot Highway Bigfoot 
Beyond the Trail film on YouTube. Convenient place to be. We have a YouTube channel, too, but they decided not to monetize us, so we don't update it. There you go. With Gene and Tim and Alexander, you're in. The Pericast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you love reading about the mysteries of the universe? Do you wonder what secrets are hidden in the shadows of our own planet? If so, you won't want to miss these two amazing books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, the Others Among Us, you'll explore the world of the mimics of man, beings that can look like us but are not. They've been among us since the beginning of history, hiding in plain sight, influencing our culture in ways we can scarcely imagine. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll discover the so-called hard evidence of UFOs that's been available for study this entire time, but for the most part has been ignored. These two books will open your eyes to a hidden reality that has been right in front of our eyes all along. That's Mimics, The Others Among Us, and Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. Available now on Amazon.com. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe 25000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is a perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need 25000 50000 or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-721-2477. 800-721-2477. That's 800-721-2477. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Okay, let's continue. Migration patterns of Bigfoot. Alexander, if they were traveling en masse, wouldn't we see some of that? Yeah, I personally don't believe that there's a migrational route in terms of, let's say, a Sasquatch moving from Pennsylvania to Florida through the Appalachian Mountains in a season. I think that's extremely far-fetched in my view. There's some people that believe that. I'm not knocking that. I just don't think it's likely. I think likely what's going on, and this is all just postulating. This is not really based on any solid evidence, of course, but is that Sasquatches that, let's say, live in the northern Appalachian Mountains, they would kind of be in that area. They may have routes that they migrate into just 
few mountain ranges away or, you know, within 100 miles or so, let's say, just because of food resources. Maybe in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, they're following the elk who move up higher in elevation in the summer and lower in the winter. Maybe that maybe it has to do with seasonality. Maybe in Florida, in the swamps, they wouldn't have to move at all because year round they have pretty consistent weather and food. So I think it just depends on the region. Alaska is a, is an interesting one. You know, and why go through the trouble to get up to Alaska? I think it's a, a incredible part of the world. There's nothing really like it. Uh, and I think the possibility of, of something like Sasquatch being there is, is absolutely prime. I mean, there's more than enough space to support a few Sasquatches in a place like Alaska, which is so sparsely populated and so wild. Uh, and in Alaska, specifically that case I talked about, Area A, where we got to go, that's a unique situation I found myself in where I I know the property owner and I have access to this area that essentially nobody else is going into to contaminate it in the sense that, let's say you're investigating a national forest or a state park, it's somewhere in the lower 48, that's kind of well-known in the Bigfoot circles. Well, you know, maybe one day this research group goes there, two weeks later you've got another research group, and they're finding evidence of that other research group and saying we found Bigfoot footprints, and they're using the same areas, so you have the idea of contamination from other sources is huge, whereas a location like this that's over an hour boat ride from a, from a small town town in the middle of nowhere alaska is as remote as you can get uh within reason that allows you to actually go out to a location and know you're not if there's somebody else there with you you will know that they're there because you will physically see them coming in a boat or a plane so you have this unique situation to kind of eliminate other than yourself being contaminant other people being an outside kind of influence that can create something that you know may result in you thinking you have evidence or whatever so i think that location you know just building kind of a, a personal relationship with the owner and being able to be in that situation and and document i think was a really big chance for me and i think that's why we went last year and that's why i ended up going back to alaska this year while also expanding into other areas of alaska working with other local bigfoot researchers up there which was really neat so you know it's it's opportunity of a lifetime of course for me and i'm not complaining at all but uh, being able to tell those stories is wonderful again i think it comes back to being in that kind of unique situation i think with a lot of this a lot of the topic of sasquatch there's these particular either properties or cases very remote areas where you have sort of ongoing years of activity that might be indicative of either curiosity or trying to get people off the area out of the area and i think that's kind of the case with this area a place there's been a few other cases like that throughout sort of the history of the sasquatch topic so i think that's a prime example of being in kind of one particular area obviously in a place like alaska where you've got millions of acres but here you've got one area with ongoing potential activity so why not try to focus there and and try a few tricks up your sleeve and see if anything anything sticks you could ask about window areas you know what? Let's consider that, too. We've been talking about potential window areas that seem to have a higher percentage, higher degree of paranormal activity. But if Bigfoot, you know, goes with the flow and migrates to the areas that are suitable for its environment, wouldn't that work against window areas that have them in a specific place? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Personally, you know, my, my involvement with so-called window areas, or a lot of people call them triangles, because that's sort of popularized by the Bermuda Triangle and later on by Lauren Coleman calling the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. 
the triangle after the Bermuda Triangle. That's an area I've gone to quite a bit, the Bridgewater Triangle. I think when you look at Sasquatch, I personally think it's some sort of a flesh and blood hominid or hominin type creature. Uh, but I think you look at where the sightings are distributed, and this is what's great with a lot of the sightings when you have a database, such as the Bigfoot Mapping Project or something else. Uh, you have just a mass of sightings, so you start to see patterns. Whereas an individual sighting, you may get, okay, you know, that's cool, it's great, but imagine getting 20 sightings and you start plotting them on a map. Well, they're all happening in a certain area. And what we notice with Sasquatch sightings is they tend to happen in areas that have a lot of wilderness, uh, towns very close to the edges of the civilization, so to speak, in terms of wilderness. They're not happening in small forested sections of Brooklyn or major urban areas. The sightings closely align with... Uh, where other animals inhabit, black bear or moose or mountain lions or, or other creatures. So you have that pattern. But some of these window areas, like the Bridgewater Triangle, it, it does have some wooded areas. I think in the past, before the kind of built-up urbanization, would have been suitable for perhaps Sasquatches to pass through the area. At least we theorize, because you have a lot of these areas, like the place in Pennsylvania I mentioned earlier in the show where I had my UFO sighting. There's a lot of Sasquatch sightings all around that area because you've got rural areas, tons of woods, farmland, easy food. Uh, so you may have more than one thing going on at the same time. I don't know necessarily it's all connected. I know a lot of people kind of like to think it is with high strangeness. I, I personally don't know. I think it's possible that, you know, you may see something strange glowing in the woods, but then have a Sasquatch sighting. Does that mean they're connected? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I think it may be partially coincidence that you have some of these areas that have Sasquatch sightings and other things going on, because then you'll have an area that doesn't have any, a lot of the other weirdness going on, but plenty of Sasquatch sightings. So which one is it, right? Is it one? Does it all have to be connected? Or is it multiple things going on at the same time? I mean, just that UFO I saw in Pennsylvania, there was nothing Sasquatch-like about that encounter, so I don't consider it connected to any potential Sasquatch activity going on in that area. Um, but, yeah, the, the concept of window areas is interesting. Again, I mentioned the Bridgewater Triangle. That's one I've had a chance to go to. Uh, it's probably one of the more well-known at this point in the whole world. It's a very fascinating story because not only do you have Bigfoot sightings, you have other strange creature sightings, you've got a lot of the more ghost, paranormal kind of stuff. You've also got real-world crimes and true crime kind of stuff with cult activity or alleged cult activity, as well as gangland murders and just horrific actions by, I think, the true monsters, which are not Sasquatch, which are humans, in my opinion, which time and time again are humans are the real monsters, right? So you've got all that muddled into one area, like the Bridgewater Triangle, and it kind of it, it becomes its own entity. It takes on its own kind of urban myth status and the Bridgewater Triangle is a place that people go to to try and get scared while walking through the Freetown State Forest or find a creature in the Hockamock Swamp. They kind of take on a life of their own, whether or not there may have been some real occurrences there, which in, in the case of the Bridgewater Triangle with real murders, absolutely there were UFO sightings, everything. It kind of becomes its own entity and then takes onto its own status, whether it's in our heads or not. It's still something semi-tangible, I'd say. I think of that in the sense of UFO flaps, where lots of people see UFOs for a while, and I wonder in part if that's just the effect of the cause. We have a UFO sighting that gets some kind of publicity. People looking up in the sky and they see something or they get in on the act, and we have a flap and it goes on for a few weeks and a few months, and then it's gone. The question being, were there really more UFO sightings there? or just more people to see them. And I'm wondering if window areas are in part the same thing. 
where stuff attracts people and that brings more eyeballs. And if things are going on, more eyeballs will report things. Well, yeah, that's a great point, I think, about you know these flaps that's happened with Bigfoot and other monster sightings as well. I mean, that's very Orson Welles, War of the World-esque, right, where you have people seeing water towers and shooting at them, thinking that there are uh, these tripod alien invaders, things that they've been seeing for years. And it's a kind of a mass. There, there is mass hysteria that happen. And that's happened with Bigfoot sightings where you've had classic processions of armed locals trying to hunt down creatures that have been seen in the area and then shooting at people they know or somebody just moving around in the woods. Uh, there's stuff like that has happened. And I, I don't think that, uh, you know, it, and that again comes to the question of is there, is that, cause and effect or what is going on tim alexander gene you're in the podcast do you need a website well you can get a great deal on hosting services with namecheap's legendary coupon code they're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting business hosting vps hosting reseller hosting and even dedicated servers namecheap is preferred by millions it's backed by a money-back guarantee use the coupon code legendary to cash in on the special deal at namecheap.com namecheap.com first game attack of the rockoids and it was a critically acclaimed success and now there is the coming of the protectors a former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream a dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the earth this is gripping science fiction of the classic kind attack of the rockoids and the coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s dot com Donald Trump warned America. The U.S. dollar is under attack, and it's becoming less and less valuable by the day. Hyperinflation and speculation is killing your retirement. Don't leave your money sitting in cash. It's time you diversified and protected your future with physical precious metals. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000 and get your free digital dollar survival kit and learn how you could get up to $1,000 in free silver today. Call Advantage Gold now at 800-900-8000 to get your free digital dollar survival kit. And you may qualify for $1,000 in free silver. Advantage Gold is the number one rated gold and silver company in America. Your future is precious. Protect it today when you call Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000 now. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Check with your financial advisor before investing. That's 800-900-8000. We depend on our drinking water supply daily, but where does that water come from? Your water provider encourages you to get to know your local water source so together we can protect and preserve it. The investments we make as a community to protect our water source now ensure we have a sustainable drinking water supply for the future. Visit drinktap.org to learn more. This message is brought to you by the American Water Works Association and your local water provider. 
Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or you now need affordable health insurance, you need to make this free call right now and see how the health insurance helpline can help you get it. We specialize in helping the self-employed and people just like you that need affordable health insurance to get it. We have short and long-term health insurance plans and some even cover dental, vision, and prescription drugs. Don't take a risk with your family health insurance, it's not worth it. If you're self-employed or now need affordable health insurance, call right now and learn for free how to get it. Listen, affordable health insurance plans for everyone just like you are a free phone call away. So give us a shout right now. 800-670-0946. 800-670-0946. 800-670-0946. That's 800-670-0946. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Back with Alexander, back with Monsters. Tell us more. Absolutely. Uh, In regards to these kind of examples of mass hysteria, whether or not they are really because there's more sightings or because maybe people are more comfortable with reporting their sightings. To relate this back to the Lake Champlain monster, you had in 1980 the publishing of the Sandra Mansky photo, which is that famous photo of kind of a head and neck sticking out of the water, not the one to be mistaken with Loch Ness, different one. It was on the front page of the New York Times. And as a result, in the early 80s, there was a big flap in champ sightings. Now, there may be two things going on here. There may be, yes, maybe more people were reporting their sightings because maybe they were more comfortable. Oh, finally, I can talk about my sighting I had in 1967. Now that Champ seems to be mainstream, I can talk about it. Or, on the other hand, which I think both are going on, by the way, you may have people... They see something unusual in the lake. Maybe it was a bird from a distance, and that becomes a champ because they were influenced by what they saw going on. So you have two things going on, right? There's actually a a term in law enforcement that I've been told by some law enforcement buddies that talk about. They notice when there's a big blockbuster movie or a big cultural phenomena that happens – that will directly reflect in the reporting they get with police reports. You know, people say they saw something or say that they a certain crime was depicted a certain way. There's an influence from certain popular media that seeps into culture, whether we like it or not, and the way people behave. So you have that as a factor as well. So uh, when it comes to monsters, that may be part of it. And I think a flap area like that is definitely a candidate for all of those possibilities. And another one, another example is, say you've got a Bigfoot museum, you know, there's a 
quite a few of them in the country at this point. Uh, you maybe a handful, and there's you know Cliff Barraquin's Bigfoot Museum in the Mount Hood Wilderness area near Oregon. There's Bigfoot Museum in North Georgia. Uh, so places like that seem to have a lot of sightings now. People will say, well, that's because that maybe that means they're in a hotspot, or maybe it's because they're the only ones taking sightings. So you have a Bigfoot museum, you're naturally going to get more people coming to you telling you their stories because they're comfortable with it. They finally have an outlet to tell their story, so they're going to report it to you. Whereas maybe 10 minutes from that location, there are no known sightings, but the habitat is very much the same. So you may have just as many sightings in an area, but no one to really collect them or get those reports. I think the, the overlapping theme between flap areas and any of these monster stories is that we're dealing with people here, and you need people to have these sightings, whether they be UFOs or Sasquatch or whatever the case may be. Uh, we're dealing with people, so you're going to have a lot of anecdotal data and that sort of thing, and, and there can become a lot of headaches with that and a lot of ways of having to vet through things. As I mentioned, you have a lot of different things going on at one time. I wonder if some of the so-called paranormal elements that surround some Sasquatch sightings could actually be the result of a natural ability of these creatures, like, as you referenced with the uh, mountain gorillas, to be able to produce an, an infrared sound. Not infrared. Um, you're going to have to tell me again. Infrasound. Infrasound, which... Uh, laboratory experiments with uh, infrasound, people report, I think it was like a feeling of in- uneasiness, of being watched. Some people uh, just suddenly felt scared out of their you know, out of their skin, which is what a lot of people report with these uh, Sasquatch sightings. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a possibility. As I talked about earlier, just knowing now, and this is fairly recent, uh, like within the last couple of months that I read this literature about these scientists finding out that uh, these gorillas can produce vocalizations that affect the behavior of female gorillas just by the, the volume and, and this this infrasonic kind of thing going on there that we can't, again, we can't understand this. We can't even hear it with our own ears, right? Whereas other animals might. I mean, even infrasound with storms and that sort of thing, you think about when animals, pets, escape places with hurricanes they'll just run the other direction it's because they can actually hear these frequencies and these kind of changes that we just simply as humans cannot uh, but we can be affected by them that's that's the difference there it's not like we are completely immune from its effects as you mentioned some of those studies have found people being very uneasy uh, and people report a lot of times this feeling of being watched when it comes to sasquatch and i've had this happen to me once as well out in the woods and uh, hiking through an area that I've done some research in here in New Hampshire where there's a history of kind of strange activity, going with a friend of mine at night while I had not primed him at all, I had not told him, I just said, hey, come with me for a night hike. This was in 2020 during the kind of pandemic uh, lockdown, so we were able to you know, get out in the woods a lot because there wasn't a whole lot else to do, uh, and I focused intensely on this one area near me. And out with this friend, and we're walking, and I, I got this unmistakable feeling i've only had a handful of times in all these years of being watched and i'm thinking to myself it's this eerie feeling like you're you're you can feel in the back of your neck i don't know how to explain it i thought in my own head i thought wow we're being watched and at that same moment my friend out loud says dude i think we're being watched Hmm. i turned to him and said what are you what are you kidding me how did you know i was thinking that he said dude i don't know i just have this very weird feeling we keep walking along the trail and then we proceed to hear what sounds like wood knocks and something breaking a tree in a swamp right across from us uh and 
recorded and afterwards i had a conversation with him and he said i don't know what that was but that was really weird i said i've never experienced that you know what are you a mind reader right um so i don't know what's going on with that i mean that may just be just some, again infrasonic i don't know I, I really can't pretend to even know i don't know enough about infrasonic i just find it interesting that uh you know for example another encounter a friend of mine had uh, in new hampshire in the mountains while camping was seeing something rub its hand along the tent and then hearing this vocalization that he said he felt in his chest and that it kind of it vibrated his chest. And that's something I've heard with a lot of other reports, people getting roared at. Another friend of mine who is a former state park uh, guy down in Massachusetts saw two Sasquatches in western Massachusetts and one roared at him. And he felt it. Uh, so whether or not that's maybe just feeling the volume of a roar that is is very loud i mean you imagine something like a sasquatch size wise would probably have larger lung capacity than humans in terms of being able to produce audio um but then again these gorillas they they can produce some sort of infrasonic vocalization so it's intriguing it's intriguing to say the least wouldn't it be interesting to take these vocalizations and see if we can find specific word comparisons yeah, I know that's been done some extent with uh, some of the Sierra Sound stuff. I'm not too familiar with it, but I know there was a guy, uh, Scott Nelson, I think it was, who was a cryptolinguist who looked at uh, some uh, claiming that there was some potential language in some of the Sierra Sounds. I don't know how sound that is, but uh, most of the vocalizations and stuff that's out there seems to be, you know, grunts whoops those kinds of things those sorts of anim very animalistic noises but some of the stuff as i mentioned from the alaska property there that i that i've been to it's almost like mumbling and i've heard this reported with people who have had encounters where they say it sounds like somebody's either speaking gibberish or even uh like if you hear somebody who is uh, some sort of mentally handicapped uh, speaking it's kind of like a strange sort of maybe strange dialect of something that's kind of what it sounds i've heard people report sounding like a foreign language just something strange whether or not it's just whether or not it's words i don't know that's the thing we really have no way of knowing i mean we don't know what these things are let alone what they're capable of do they have primitive culture do they uh, are they solitary do they act like other creatures where maybe the males are solitary and that's why we have these sightings i don't know we will try to find out more well, there's a lot of guesswork involved there. Alexander, Gene, and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who help people that have been injured or wronged. If you've been involved in a serious car, truck, or motorcycle accident or injured at work, you have rights and you may be entitled to money for your suffering. Don't accept an offer you get from an insurance company until you talk to a lawyer. And we represent some of the best personal injury lawyers you can find. Tough lawyers that will fight to win your case. And they're so good they stake their reputation on it by only getting paid if you win. So if you've been in a serious car, truck, or motorcycle accident or hurt on the job, find out today for free what kind of compensation you may be entitled to. Call the legal helpline right now. 800-509-4492 800-509-4492 That's 800-509-4492 
update. President Biden and First Lady Jill touring hurricane damage in the town of Live Oak, Florida, where massive trees are down and homes destroyed in the aftermath of Hurricane Adalia. President Biden visited parts of Florida on Saturday that were devastated by Hurricane Idalia. Biden took an aerial tour and spoke in Live Oak, one of the towns in the process of recovering. The spirit of this community is remarkable. When people are in real trouble, the most important thing to give them is hope. There's no hope like your neighbor walking across the street and see what they can do for you. Tributes pouring in this Sunday morning as fans across the globe continue to pay tribute to the late Jimmy Buffett, who has passed away at the age of 76. Here's Key West Mayor Terry Johnson. He projected our lifestyle to people from around the world, you know, live and let live. TMZ reporting he was diagnosed with skin cancer four years ago that spread. This is USA News. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Have you ever watched a video on the Internet and found yourself waiting for the skip the ad button? The reason this takes a few seconds is because the video delivery companies get to collect impression commission, and the viewer never sees the advertisement. The company still pays full price to run the ad. Does this sound like a scam to you? Is there any wonder why Internet ads are so ineffective? For over 100 years, radio has been a proven source for companies' messages. Radio listeners are engaged and want to support the companies that sponsor the shows they're so passionate about. Simple companies like window treatments, security, pillow companies, and more have been able to break away from the big box stores building multi-million dollar businesses. Find out what radio can do for your business. Call 877-996-4327. Or advertise at GCNlive.com. That's advertise at GCNlive.com. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So... We had to find out who's running for the leadership, the tribal leader of that particular race. Get involved in their <laughs> politics. Right. See, yeah, that's the thing. We don't know. We don't know if there are what a lot of people theorize is that perhaps a lot of these sightings that happen, they typically tend to be six to eight, nine feet tall, right? And it's a male-like figure. There's very rare, I mean, they do happen. But they're not nearly as common as the solitary kind of male sightings where you have sightings of juveniles or even females or more than one at, at a time. Uh, I've heard of sightings of people seeing two or three at a time. Uh, most of the time it's just one. So does that mean, let's say, for example, like a lot of species where you have a family group and then 
once a male comes to a certain age, is then kicked from the group and is sent on his way to try and establish his own family. Some We know some apes do that sort of behavior. So is that what's going on? Or are they always in family groups like we as humans mostly are? You have to remember, we're apes as well. As different as we are than any of the other apes, there's a big difference, but we're, we're very similar in some aspects. We're social creatures. We live with our families or with partners our entire life, basically, in one capacity or another. But we also do that. Once you become a certain age, you leave your family group to start a new one and rinse and repeat. Is that also going on here? I mean, we really have no way of knowing. It's, it's a good working theory, I suppose. But until we have some irrefutable proof that that's what's going on, uh, all we have is a lot of anecdotal stories. And most of them tend to be of that single, lone, solitary male crossing the road. Or maybe it's a juvenile having fun crossing the road to mess with humans uh, but there are other reports of of encountering family groups um i just heard of a story as i was driving up to alaska of a researcher from the yukon who told me the story of these first nations guys up there going fishing and hunting and uh, they they heard a baby crying and they came across a juvenile sasquatch and then a mother came along and picked it up and basically swam across the river to get away from the people and that's not a very common type of sighting so yeah, there's just a lot of uh, a lot of guesswork involved, I suppose. I've often wondered about, at least so far, the lack of any kind of fossil evidence when it comes to um, Sasquatch type of creatures. Now, I know that uh, some people have climbed onto the Gigantopithecus, but that was over, I think, in China, and I don't think there's been any evidence that anything like that had ever moved to. North America, which makes me wonder, is the Sasquatch a fairly new species that has developed in a, you know, I mean, so, you know, so close to um, the human era of the world that fossils haven't had a chance to develop yet? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, I'll use the Gigantopithecus for a point I'm going to make, but I don't believe that they're connected. I mean, there's theories that Gigantopithecus were kind of related to orangutans, modern orangutans. That seems to be more of the line of thinking now. Gigantopithecus being related to orangutans or perhaps being a predecessor to orangutans, that's a theory. But what's interesting is that the Gigantopithecus was the largest ape in, in history that we know of. And the only fossil evidence we have that it even exists are teeth and part of a jawbone. There's nothing else we have, uh, which is you'd expect for such a large animal, right, that we'd have some sort of evidence. But I think the point is they live in an environment where fossilization is is not great, right, in those kind of humid jungles of, of China and Southeast Asia, Thailand and Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. That's, that's kind of where the Gigantopithecus was. And if we look at gorillas and chimps, uh, at least from the reading I've done, fossil evidence is very scant that they even exist even though they've been around for a long time, as far as we know, right? Uh, but look at the environments they live in. They live in these, in the Congo, these rainforests, these jungles, these mountain rainforests in the Virunga and the Congo that just are not conducive for fossilization. And, and again, to bring it back to the Gigantopithecus, one of the only reasons we have some of those fossils is because they were discovered in caves and they were being sold in Chinese apothecary markets in, in the 1930s and 40s before World War II uh, as dragon medicine. You know, they would find these fossils, grind them up, and use them for uh, kind of traditional Chinese medicinal purposes. That's when these European uh, paleontologists were going around literally buying fossils from Chinese markets and discovering new species, including Gigantopithecus. Mm -hmm. And these bones were being found in caves, which required a specific circumstance. In the case of the Gigantopithecus, it's theorized that 
porcupines, which consume bones, were actually dragging bits of bones in. Maybe a Gigantopithecus died, and they would drag part of the skull in. And as a result, the teeth would be the only things left. And they happened to be in a great place for fossilization, which was inside of a cave, as opposed to being out in a bamboo forest, which would have been outside of the cave. So that example, I think, serves very intriguingly when you're talking about the Sasquatch conversation. Now, look at North America. Not great for fossilization. Where do we typically find fossils in North America? Places like Utah, uh, drier parts of Montana, some of these sort of desert environments. That's where maybe at one point that was a forest, but where do the Sasquatch sightings tend to happen? The temperate rainforests of the Pacific Northwest all the way up to Alaska, the Rocky Mountain, the mountainous parts that get a lot of precipitation in terms of rain and snow, and the Appalachian Mountains, which are deciduous temperate forests. So, you have uh, situations that are not great for fossilization. Uh, so I don't think it's a surprise we haven't found any kind of Sasquatch evidence. No one's really going to uh, the, the Ho Rainforest in Washington State and saying this is a great place to do an excavation to look for prehistoric fossils, right? That's just not really happening. All right. Taking that uh, question then a step further, and of course this is just speculation, uh, what do you think they are. Do you think that we're dealing with a close cousin species of of humans? Because so many sightings that people report, they say that these things look human. The face, there's something about the face. And I suppose, you know, being able to stand upright, they just get the impression that they are looking at a human. If somebody would run across a mountain gorilla they would never say that looks like a human but with the sasquatch you get you 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 always get a lot even despite the size it looked human well i think what's interesting is you do look at you actually there are the some of the early reports of mountain gorillas the natives talked about a man-like hairy creature that lived in the mountains and that the you know, Europeans at the time didn't believe it. It sounded too far-fetched, but that's what it turned out to be. I think if you spend time looking at gorillas and chimps in the zoos and you get this sort of really human-like appearance, you look into the eyes of an orangutan or a gorilla at the zoo and it's it's like there's thought and reason going on there as opposed to, say, looking at a white-tailed deer or some sort of a kind of less intelligent species. But I don't know what Sasquatch is. That's obviously the question we're all talking about. There's people that think it's a flesh and blood, undiscovered primate like a gorilla, uh, or people that think it's some sort of a near human kind of hominid type or hominin species. Then there's people on the other side that say it's connected with UFOs. Some people say it's interdimensional. I mean, there's a lot of competing theories, right? I don't know which one's right. I think just based off of the little data and evidence we have, there's much more of a precedent for something like a hominin or hominid to exist. If they've always been around, we're learning so much more about ancient species like this that we thought never existed previously all the time. I mean, we're talking about the Denisovans and to the Homo floresiensis in, uh, in Indonesia, where you have stories to this day of the Orang Pendek, which is described as a small Sasquatch-type creature, not far from where they've discovered fossil evidence in caves, again, of a small type of people that were very small that may have been covered in hair. Uh, you have these interesting parallels. So the precedent is there, I think, more strongly for some sort of an undiscovered, uh, you know, closely related human type creature, not human necessarily, but something that's 
somewhere along the lines where maybe there's a kind of convergent evolution where these things have just adapted to live in the woods, uh, kind of parallel to our world, I suppose. And I mean, it's really only in the past couple hundred years that the world has become industrialized in the sense that we are everywhere now. Before humans, we had to live close to the coastlines, close to rivers, close to lakes for transportation and moving. It's a very recent phenomena that we have began to be able to fly around the world or get around the world as easily as we do. So uh, I think in the past, these things would have had a much easier time staying hidden. Hey, we've got more to come with Alexander. One more segment. And Gene and Tim, you're in The Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Hi, this is Sophie Winnick, longtime distributor and user of Longevity products. In the last few years, my family went through a crisis. Everything else in my life, including my business, had to be put on the back burner. Thankfully, life is getting back to normal now. But the one thing I never had to worry about was my business and my monthly commission. I've been a distributor for Longevity for over 17 years, since before it was Longevity. And I've got to say, the most amazing thing about this company is the people. While my family was in crisis, other distributors stepped in and helped my customers. Simply because that's what longevity people do, even for people they don't know. For me, it has never been about getting rich. It was about a product I could stand behind, a company I could count on, and a monthly commission check that has never not once been late in 17 years. Longevity is truly a business for everyone, even people who have too much to do. I'm Sophie Winnick. I'm just like you. I have a real life, real ups and downs, but I know I will always have longevity. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. 
It's obvious we're being let down by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media are distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the real concerns of American families. Countries we're at odds with are hoarding food, financial systems are strained, and supply chains remain too fragile. We can tell something is coming, so we're preparing. Folks are getting into self-reliance and investing in emergency food storage. And My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, makes it easy for you to have peace of mind knowing you're prepared. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure some emergency food kits. There's a dozen to choose from that contain tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one food kit for each family member. And while you're there, stock up on water filtration, heirloom seeds, and emergency gear, too, at MyPatriotSupply.com. It's time to prepare today. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com. Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. Now, in all this, I think we all agree that eyewitness testimony is very inconsistent, even on things we recognize. So that being said, how much of what we know about these creatures is based on people just taking something and turning it into something that's weird? Uh, That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer, so to speak, but... So much of what we do have in terms of some of the reported behaviors and that sort of thing is definitely anecdotal. And it's coming from people just having an experience. And again, one of my favorite things is being able to look at, let's say, 50 sightings over the course of a couple decades in a particular region. You know, maybe it's one state or one national forest that stretches between a couple different states and noticing patterns. You say, well, how many examples are there of people camping, just minding their own business and having something happen to them, whether they're getting stuff thrown at them or physically seeing a creature, hearing wood knocks. Uh, I've kind of gone through and looked at some of that stuff, and it's interesting. Again, you start seeing patterns. You start seeing areas where it almost seems like it's geographically confined to certain areas, as opposed to being seen in places that would not be conducive for a physical creature, right? There is a lot of that. I mean, but a lot of it comes down to personal experiences. I think just some of the things I've had happen to myself have really made me wonder. Now, can I say they're all 100% Sasquatch? No, of course not. Once you start looking at those statistics and you say, okay, well, there's this many sightings or this many reports of this type of vocalization, you have something like that happen to you, and it kind of fits into that category of purported behavior, which, you know, again, I can't confirm, but I do find intriguing, uh, especially when you kind of go through the possibilities of what it might not be. You know, to the other creatures, you kind of do that process of elimination. Uh, You're left with the kind of conclusion, as I have in, in a few cases, of well, gee, that fits the purported behavior of a Sasquatch, but without seeing it, I can't say with certainty, but there's not a whole lot of other possibilities. Not a lot of animals can throw rocks such distances and in the midst of other sounds, for example. I think what happens a lot of, a lot of times in a lot of my investigations and a lot of times with this topic is that you end up coming out of it more, with more questions than answers. That seems to be the, the, the most consistent part of it. <laughs> that then raises the larger question, Will we forever be chasing after phantoms of the night or day and never come up with something solid to say, this is it, put in the history books, let's move on? I sure hope so. I I hope we're not 
still chasing our tails, so to speak. But I think, as I mentioned earlier, just it's really only the past 150 years, I would argue, that we as humans have lived the way we live. And even more recently, I mean, we've had cell phones and Wi-Fi technology publicly available for not that long. I mean, less than a full lifetime. I mean, just comparing from the 1990s when I was a kid to now, I mean, I carry around in my pocket a cell phone that has LiDAR technology that I can scan footprints with. In the 1990s, I would have had to carry out plaster with me and make a physical imprint. And that's less than 30 years difference, right? Just how, how imagine 20 years from now, right? So uh, I think as the technology gets better, I think that the window is narrowing. Uh, the world, unfortunately, is is going to be more known because we will be able to go to places and use Starlink in the middle of nowhere and have the ability to monitor things and, and communicate and set up a camera or something in a remote wilderness area that we wouldn't be able to have dreamed of in the past. So I think the world in, in that sense is getting narrower and narrower. But I think the difficulty at the moment is the technology just isn't quite there and that there's just too much space still out there. But who knows, with AI, we may be able to narrow that gap. It may lead to other frightening consequences for our species, but maybe there will be a few interesting discoveries along the way. I have to think global warming, all this excessive extreme weather, is hurting the lifestyles of any of these creatures, should they exist. Yeah, I mean, it would have to. You have not only potentially you know unrecognized species like sasquatch but all the other normal creatures that live well normal in the sense that ones that we know of that live in these environments are clearly feeling the impact of some kind of climactic or climatic shifting going on and uh, whether it be wildfires in canada or even near the patterson gimlin film site in northern california just as of a few days ago there was a fire raging not very far from that film site uh, the place where that sierra sounds that we talked about uh, those recordings that area that was there was burned i mean it no longer looks the way it would have looked when those recordings were made so there'd have to be a shift in behavior or moving away I've, I've even talked to some folks out in oregon and other places who talk about the wildfire seasons and how that's affecting some of the sightings in areas that completely go dead because that environment is dead and it's no longer a viable place for something like a sasquatch let alone undulates and potential prey species to be hanging out in there's a lot of things going on at the moment in the world in terms of the weather and just craziness so it's going to have an effect inevitably on anything living in an area whether whether it's uh, kind of endemic to that area or not and unless they have a very advanced civilization that we are unaware of they wouldn't even know what's happening to them, except that's happening. Right. I mean, I think so many species that have existed in the world have just disappeared without even necessarily the humans knowing, have gone extinct in the past. Something so elusive, if this thing is a physical creature, to this point is still evading us in terms of being able to conclusively prove it. Uh, maybe it could go extinct without us even knowing it in certain cases. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's where the kind of the part of the mystery comes in. But if you lose an entire environment, you're going to lose basically all the species that live in that area. So that, I think, maybe provides an opportunity to study it for those kinds of purposes. But uh, you would hope that it doesn't come to that, to be able to prove something as we're seeing the last of its kind being proved. So what's your most recent video that you've released on uh, YouTube? So I've got quite a few videos coming out, quite a bit. You can check them out all on the Small Town Monsters YouTube channel. But the most recent one would have been the Alaska Bigfoot Highway. That was um, one of them. And then uh, actually, as of recording this video um, on September 3rd, 
I will have another video coming out, which is part two of the investigation at that property I talked about called Area A on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. And then a few weeks after that, there will be another Alaska Bigfoot video. So I've got quite a few of them coming out, but the most recent one would be the Alaska Bigfoot Highway, which, as we talked about throughout the show, documents my travels up the Alaska Highway and all the great stories I heard along the way. And the one after that's going to be what? So the one after that will be Dark Coast, again, part two of that investigation. After that will be a video about uh, Bigfoot stories from interior Alaska. So the very center part of Alaska, we went out there for a few days and got killed by some of the worst mosquitoes I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they're monsters in, in interior Alaska. You're in the deep in the boreal forest. So very different from those beautiful coastal rainforests at Area A. Uh, the boreal forest is no joke in the summertime. But didn't somebody in Alaska once say, I could see Russia? <laughs> well, they'd have to have really good vision to see that. I mean, Alaska, once you go to Alaska, you see how large that place is. Uh, it's a, you're, you're a drop in the bucket compared to the land mass of Alaska. It's, it's unreal, but it's one of the most beautiful places in the world for a reason. So if we want to know more about the things you're up to, Alexander Petikoff, where can we check you out? My website's a great place. It's got links to everything, including all the videos I've talked about, other works I've been involved with. Uh, it's Petikov Media. That's P-E-T-A-K-O-V, media.com. Alternatively, if you search Small Town Monsters on Google or YouTube, inevitably you'll find some of my work as I, I work for Small Town Monsters, and we are an independent production company that focuses on not only just Bigfoot, but other cryptids, Mothman, UFOs, all sorts of stuff. We've got a very wide array of, of interesting stuff. You'll, if you're into the weird, you'll find something you like. We'll definitely check you out. Definitely check you out. Speaking of checking things out, you can find us on Threads, Twitter, or X, or whatever, if it doesn't become Y, or Facebook, if you look for the Paracast, all right? I guess if I keep insulting X, Elon Musk will hear us and throw us out, and then we'll get all that publicity, which is really good. <laughs> you can get branded merchandise for the Paracast at theparacast.shop. We give throw pillows and T-shirts and caps with four different logos to choose from, theparacast.shop or theparacast.store. We also offer our own streaming service, theparacast.plus, where you get more information. We offer this show without the network ads in better quality audio and the exclusive bonus after the Paracast podcast. Say that five times backwards. <laughs> and we extend the show or do other things. For example, we're going to have Alexander back on After the Paracast this week. You never know what's going to happen next. You also get a 20% discount if you use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20. Check out the Paracast.plus, the Paracast.plus. Alexander Petikoff, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you, Gene Tim. Featuring Gene Steinberg is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.